This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Thursday. Ah, oh, it's happening. Slowly the week passes. September 8th, Thursday, one more day till you get to mow your lawn. The biggest event of the day? Uh, of today's day? Yeah. I'm uh, probably playing tennis? No. Oh. Is there something else going on today? 8.30 tonight. 8.30 Eastern. The NFL kicks off. <gasps> it does? Yeah. Who's playing? Panthers, Broncos. Oh, that's right. Super Bowl. Revisited. Well, except the Broncos are... Except they lost the quarterback. They're rolling out a guy named... I got his name here. Trevor Simeon. <laughs> He's your new Broncos quarterback. Trevor Simeon. Man, he'll kill it. He'll do a great job. Or get killed, whichever. And the Panthers will be on fire. This is it, the beginning. Yeah. So 8.30 tonight. 8.30 Eastern. I'm going to write that down right now. Don't put forget. That, put that in my day planner. Wow, what a show we got for you today. Um, we, of course, are going to do a, a review of last night's forum, presidential forum, because we know you love the forums. Yeah, it's like the most passive-aggressive debate you can have. Mm-hmm. They're both in the building. They both don't talk to each other. Matt Lauer is having is getting so beat up right now. He is. And I didn't watch. I was playing tennis. <laughs> Uh, let me make a, let me clarify. I was pulling my hamstring, <laughs> but Matt Lauer is getting a beat down. So I'm assuming that Hillary didn't do as well as expected. Matt was harder on Hillary. Uh, no, was he harder on Donald? He let Donald Trump just say things, and he didn't correct yeah, him. Yeah. So when the, when the Hillary, record... he hammered down on on her emails. I yes. read all about that. Well, I don't know if he hammered. Well, I down, think that's what but... people just think that. He was he more more focused on the emails rather than Trump right. saying he was against the Iraqi war? Right, and even though many don't, he went on. That. He, well, because he went on uh, Howard, Stern Howard Stern and said we should go in. Right, but he said, yeah, I went on Brett Bear or whatever his name is, and I was in. There's some Esquire well, yeah. article or something, but he, there's this audio they keep playing from Howard Stern saying, "Yeah, I think we should go in there." But this is a really important point. Maybe this is the point that the morning show. News person hmm. isn't a isn't the best moderator for these things. No, probably meet the press. Yeah, I might Chuck have a Todd, meet the press. Somebody that, that kind of just does this all day long. Yeah, and so we'll get into all of that. We have a million quotes about uh, of all that fun. But here's here's the exciting part of the day. Other than football starting today and mm. Matt Lauer, you know, being yeah. apparently disgraced by all of the media. It's the media that are mad at him. Yeah, they're not happy. It's it's a very special day too because it's um, it's. I'm an iguana. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's Iguana Day. Down in Galapagos. It's Iguana Awareness iguana. Day. It's a, this little creature is one that we, we tend to overlook a lot. Mm-hmm. And today we wanted to celebrate the iguana. And they're not just in Galapagos. Another year, this, one, this one just happens to be singing about in, his in native In Florida, land. they're all through the Everglades. Oh, yeah. They're beautiful creatures. <laughs> Okay. An iguana. Happy Iguana Awareness Day. It's also Pardon Day. Pardon me. <laughs> hmm. 
Grey Poupon. Uh, on the 8th of September, back in 1974, President Gerald Ford presented a rather controversial presidential proclamation pardoning Richard Nixon. So today is Pardon Day. Excuse me? Hmm? It's Pardon Day. What? It's Pardon Day. Okay. Can you not hear? Hmm. What? So uh, today's the day you should probably pardon somebody if you have presidential powers. Or I guess governors. Can governors pardon? I don't know. Yeah, because they, I guess they can – they're always in every decision of whether we execute someone. Oh, right. They're always waiting for the governor's <laughs> phone call. That's the so, TV show. Trope. Apparently governors have some ability to pardon or to, uh, I guess, change uh, sentencing. Anyway, we'll get to all of that. But first, we must get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump spoke to veterans and military voters Wednesday night during the Commander-in-Chief Forum in New York City, sponsored by the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America organization. Each nominee had 30 minutes to answer questions from the audience, with Clinton going first. She said a Commander-in-Chief must have steadiness mixed with strength. Trump said he has a good has good judgment and knows what's going on because he's called so many of the shots. Under President Obama, generals have been reduced to rubble are an embarrassment, Trump said, and he indicated he would replace most of them. A warrant was issued yesterday in North Dakota for the arrest of Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein, who attended a protest on Tuesday against the Dakota Access Pipeline and is accused of spray painting on a bulldozer. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is working to stop the construction of part of the pipeline that leaders say could possibly pollute water and violate sacred grounds, and Stein was invited on Tuesday to the protest site near their reservation. Representative Elijah Cummings released the email exchange between Colin Powell and Hillary Clinton pertaining to her use of a private email server while she was Secretary of State. They said this email exchange shows that Secretary Powell advised Secretary Clinton with a detailed blueprint on how to skirt security rules and bypass requirements to preserve federal records, although Secretary Clinton has made clear that she did not rely on this advice. He added that it also illustrates how it's a problem that no Secretary of State ever used an official unclassified email account until the current Secretary of State. And lastly, the International Olympic Committee, the United States Olympic Committee, and USA Swimming suspended Olympic swimmer Ryan Lochte for 10 months and banned him from the 2017 World Championship meet following an incident during the Rio Olympics. The source said his suspension is longer than that of the other three U.S. swimmers who were with him during the confrontation at the Rio gas station. So there you have it, Matt. Ten months suspension. Holy cow. What does a swimmer do when you're suspended ten months? Try new hair dye. That's exactly what I would do. Find another gas station. I Maybe he ought to start diving. That's what I would do. Just switch it up. Maybe this... he should go on a dancing competition <gasps> show. Oh, wait. That's Holy what he's doing. Cow. That's, that's all... what he'll do for ten months. That's all this is. He should have been suspended from that. In fact, Dancing with the Stars ought to be suspended in general. Ten months. He, he won't last ten seconds on that show. I don't want to – he might. These athletes, they're very limber. Hmm. Uh, Governor Perry is also going to be on that show. Yes. And we will be doing special reporting. Well, somebody else will. Yeah. Yeah. We've got – Sadie Nielsen is going to follow closely Governor Perry. Really, he's the only one I really want to follow. And it will be quick. He'll be in and out. He'll only be there a week First or two. episode, gone. We don't want to carry anything on too long. No. And none of us actually want to watch the show. No. So we'll let somebody else do it and they'll tell us my what My wife happened. likes the show. A lot of my kids, well, I guess it's my, not a lot of my kids. My daughter likes the show. Dancing with the Stars. Hmm. Oh, that would be the worst thing I've, I could ever be asked to do. And it would even be made worse if you're, they like, I'll pay a million bucks. To watch the show? No, to go do oh, the show. Do Can the you show. imagine 
having to go do that. Mm. Now, you don't have to, but if they came to you and they said, Terry, we want you to be on Dancing with the Stars, mm. what would your answer be? No. $1 million. We will pay you $1 million. Well, then I would say, why? Because we want to see you dance. Because the name of the show is Stars. Let's just say you were a star. Oh, if I was? Sure. Yeah. But would you? Depends on what level of star. Am I a star on the way out and I need the money? Well, let's say you're a C star. And I'm so C level. I mean, you okay? I'd do it. Yeah, a million, million bucks. A, a million bucks would be a big, a big One payday. One million dollars. I'd do it for a hundred thousand bucks, and then get out in the first round, pull yeah. a hammy. Well, done. that's the thing is they'll pay you. Then you just sort of sit in a chair and let the the actual dancer dance around you, like somebody did at one point, yeah. and then you just out the door. See that's uh, see that doesn't count, and they just they just fire you at that point. But there's some people. This Lochte, he's gonna he'll go far. Good looking young man. Hmm. Dim-witted. <laughs> Let me just say it. Well, be nice. Excuse me? Excuse me. Pardon me. Hey, uh, has anybody... Something went on last night. A forum of sorts. Matt yeah, Lauer. There was two individual interviews that happened. Two half-hour interviews. Matt interviewed uh, both Hillary and um, Sir Don. Yes. And it created a lot of noise. It did. So let's get into some of the clips from the wonderful world of Disney. Oh, sorry. The wonderful world of presidential elections. It'd actually be Comcast. That's who owns NBC. Oh, is that who owns whatever NBC? Whatever you want to say, yeah. It was uh, Matt Lauer is having a lot of – he's receiving a lot of negative feedback about the whole thing. And, and I don't know why, but maybe some of these clips can, uh, can ferret that out. One of the winners, they say, of the night is – would be Putin. Putin apparently is – Yeah, he got a lot of time. He got a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of time, talk. A lot of mentions. Uh, but Donald's like, I'm not, it, it's not going to benefit Putin. It's not going to get him anywhere. I'm a negotiator. We're going to take back our country. You look at what's happening to our country. You look at the depleted military. You look at the fact that we've lost our jobs. We're losing our jobs like we're a bunch of babies. We're going to take back our country, Matt. The fact that he calls me brilliant or whatever he calls me is going to have zero impact. But the fact that you say you can get along with him. I do think you I'll think be able to day, get along with him. Do you think the day that you become president of the United States, he's going to change his mind on some of these key issues? Possibly. It's possible. I don't know, Matt. It's possible. He did Putin call him brilliant? I can't remember the exact quote, and actually, I've heard some uh, other translations of what he actually said. And so it's it's, oh. it's even that that what Trump actually said was mistranslated and then exaggerated. Okay. And, and that's what we got as a as a general. Well, let's public. let's ask Jeff because Jeff is fluent in Russian. Well, he'd have to hear Putin's da. exact recording. Da, he just said da. da? So right. Jeffrey. Um, could is it possible that what we thought the word was brilliant could have meant something else in Russian? Нет, невозможно. See, oh, that clears it right up. The I think it meant he's not brilliant, but he's an orange, funny-haired, crazy man. Putin does a live press conference across the nation, right? For yeah. some reason. Fareed Zakaria from CNN, right. he, he like moderated it for some reason. It was a really odd situation. Oh, wow. This was a couple months ago. And Zakaria asked him, did you say that Trump is a brilliant man? And then Putin just looked at him and laughed. <laughs> and he goes, I said he's interesting or something of that level. So he really like lowballed what he said. He goes, I didn't praise him in any way. So I'm not sure 
how this all works. But yeah, everyone's denying or accepting yeah, no one wants false this. compliments here. Isn't there a song about Putin? Putin on the Ritz. Putin on the Ritz. Where oh, is the Ritz? Play. The Ritz is just a hotel, right? It's a hotel, yeah. It's also a Nabisco product. It should be Putin in the Ritz. Oh, I love Ritz. Good tunage there. Uh, but the neat thing about Trump is, you know, in Trump's mind, Putin is better than Obama, right? That's what he said. If he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. I've already said he is really very much of a leader. I mean, you can say, oh, isn't that a terrible thing? He called him. I mean, the man has very strong control over a country. Now, it's a very different system, and I don't happen to like the system. But certainly in that system, he's been a leader far more than our president has been a leader. We have a divided country. Mm. We have a country where you have Hillary Clinton with her emails that nobody's ever seen, where she deletes 33,000 emails. And that's after getting a subpoena from Congress. If you do that in private business, you get thrown in jail. That's true. Yeah. The FBI reported that they put out the, they announced the investigation and then Hillary's guy deleted a bunch of email. <laughs> so let me get this straight. So Putin... Wonderful leader in his system. He doesn't like the system, but he's an incredible leader. Do you think Trump would like that system? You oh, tell Trump, people what yeah, to do Trump, and it happens. Yeah, I think Trump would love Here that Here you system. tell people what to do and they question you. I think he'd like the other one. He also says it's better than Obama. He's better of a leader than Obama is. Yes. And then he brought up Clinton's emails. Which is just sort of a dodge. Yeah. Um, interesting, though, Clinton... You know, got all over every got all over Donald about ISIS. Um, it's a crazy. You know, how will you actually defeat ISIS? We have to defeat ISIS. That is my highest counterterrorism goal, and we've got to do it with air power. We've got to do it with much more support for the Arabs and the Kurds who will fight on the ground against ISIS. We have to squeeze them by continuing to support uh, the Iraqi military. We're going to work to make sure that they have the support. So is the plan you've been hiding Here's Donald's this plan. whole time asking someone else for their plan? No, but when I do come up with a plan that I like and that perhaps agrees with mine or maybe doesn't, I may love what the generals come back with. I will continue. But you have your own plan. I have a plan, but I want to be. I don't want to. Look, I have a very substantial chance of winning. Okay, let me get this straight. So yes. Donald has had a plan yep. of how to destroy ISIS. That's what he says. In a very short time. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he said he had the plan. This was months ago he said he had the plan. He did. Then he came out basically saying he's going, he has a plan. He's mm-hmm. holding his plan in his head mm-hmm. like a vault. I yes, added that. Yes, yes. And he's going to have the generals when he's elected, he will then give the generals 30 days to come up with their plan. Yes. Um, then the generals will present their plan to him, and if he likes that plan, he'll do it. If or it matches if not, his ideas, he'll yeah, go yeah. to his plan. Right. Well, duh. But not telling you what his plan is, and and then Matt Lauer is saying, so you have a plan. But then of course he, I have a plan. Trump would say he's not revealing his plan because you don't want to give the enemy all your all your secrets, right? Right. And do you want? He's going to then turn it over to the generals that he also claimed that under Obama we're in rubble now. I think under the leadership of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, the generals have been reduced to rubble. They have been reduced to a point where it's embarrassing for our country. You have a force of 30,000 or so people. Nobody really knows, but probably 30,000 people. And I can just see the great, as an example, General George Patton spinning in his grave as ISIS we can't be. Hmm. Wow. The visual. 
Now, just to clarify, Hillary Clinton's plan is basically Obama's plan. Right. Maybe with a little bit more diplomacy to get some more help. Yeah. It's kind of the same idea. Donald's plan, locked in a vault in his head. And and then he'll let the generals decide. There were some of this type of tactics in 2008 when President Obama was running. Some of his plans, he said, well, I'll get into office and then we'll talk to the experts. Hey, I want to save a surprise. Yeah. So there was some of that with yeah, President Obama everywhere. also. It's it's a, you know, and I don't know if you can have plans for everything. Is, is Donald Trump really fit to be president? Well, I've built a great company. I've been all over the world. I've dealt with foreign countries. I've done very well, as an example, uh, tremendously well dealing with China and dealing with so many of the countries that are just ripping this country. They are just taking advantage of us. Well, I think the main thing is I have great judgment. I have good judgment. I know what's going on. I, I've called so many of the shots. And I happened to hear Hillary Clinton say that I was not against the war in Iraq. I was totally against the war in Iraq. And that's the big debate. Was he against the war in Iraq? He made a comment on um, Howard Stern Live. Many or uh, the year before, uh, no, go, while they were making the decisions to go into Iraq, and that's what he's saying. Anyway, th- th- we'll debate that forever. But he was his his credentials. Basically, he was a great CEO. He was a great leader. And Hillary, of course, had a lot of issues last night with her emails. Hey, same story today. In fact, uh, in uh, one of the latter hours of the sh- of the show, hour number three, I believe. We will be getting into storytelling and how you can rewrite your story. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be going uh, and talking with Kevin Shee, a professor about immigration and its impact on the economy. Is having all of this immigration negatively impacting our economy, our ability to get jobs? We'll get the straight story and the academic review. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's evident that immigrants are the cornerstone on which this great country is founded. And whether your ancestors were pilgrims that arrived at Ellis Island or uh, uh, pilgrims or those that arrived at Ellis Island over the many years, couples, uh, people, families, individuals have been working their way to America to find a better place, a better life. And although once uh, praised as trailblazers of America, immigrants are now considered a threat to American jobs, American interests, and the economy. And here to help us sort through at least the economic side of it is Dr. Kevin Shee. He is an assistant professor of economics at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and is with us today to uh, help us understand the actual data, the facts behind immigration and what immigration actually does for our economy Dr. Kevin Shee, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm pleased to uh, join you. We loved your article in theconversation.com about why we're wrong to blame immigrants for our sputtering economies. There is a lot of fear, a lot of frustration, it seems like. And it's not just in the United States. It seems like in the in all the Western countries, in Western Europe, with the Brexit issue, and uh, in Germany and France, we hear a lot of uh, just a lot of blowback, a lot of pushback about the immigra- immigration um, and its impact on us. Talk to us. Just give us a general review, I guess a general overview about 
What are the effects of immigration in America and on our economy? Um, that's a really, really good question. Uh, it's, uh, it's something where we as economists are kind of actively working on. Um, and to sort of maybe uh, set the stage and whet the appetite for, for the answer to this, uh, there's still a huge debate about this in economics, so I want to be clear about that. Yeah. Um, but the answer is that when you look across many of the studies that have been done, and there have been many, many studies about the economic impacts of immigration on the native populace and native workers, uh, most studies find very little impact. Um, and it's kind of very fascinating because the canonical, simple models that we use, the ones that we teach in basic Econ 101 classes, you know, what they say in a labor market, if you if you increase the number of workers there are, either be that through immigration or, for example, there was a huge increase in female labor force participation, that is, women starting to work in the 50s, uh, between 1950 and 1970, or each year there are 3 million college graduates that enter uh, the U.S. labor market. Any of those situations should lead to downward pressure hmm. um, on wages of workers in the U.S. And those many, many of those studies looking at immigration um, don't find those effects. Why? But they become they they end up being the scapegoat, I guess. Right? They end up becoming the one that uh, we attribute the fall to. Yeah, in a ways, many ways that does happen. Um, and to be fair to the other side, there are um, that is not to say that there are not economists who haven't found um, negative impacts. There are many studies or several studies that do find uh, uh, very negative impacts of immigration. But then on the other hand, there are also a few studies that find very positive impacts on immigration. But on average, um, most studies find nothing. Um, and it's, it's, it's been sort of a little bit of a conundrum that we've tried to figure out what is going on here. Um, well, and I guess we have to be careful, right? Because immigration, there's, uh, I guess there's, there could be illegal immigration. There can be the legal immigration. I mean, a lot of people mm-hmm. are coming over. We hear a lot of the H-1B visa programs. They might come over to work or come over for school. And when the visa expires, they stay. Um, mm-hmm. But, and, I mean, but an Elon Musk for example, you bring up in your article, is mm-hmm. is an immigrant and yet is creating right. thousands and thousands of jobs um, while other immigrants might be taking jobs. Right. And I think um, I think the issue is in sort of a little bit of a nuance. I think it's that it's very, very easy for us to think about um, jobs as sort of a fixed thing uh, as being in fixed supply so that you know, we tend to think of it as there's just a limited number of opportunities, and if there are more people competing with me, that lowers my chances. Um, but in actuality, the labor market tends to function in, in very, very different ways. Um, and so one idea, uh, one reason that immigrants may not impact native wages and job opportunities so negatively is that uh, the types of immigrants that come to the U.S. are very different um, than native workers, which is sort of um, rather maybe a little bit obvious in that they're immigrants. They don't have familiarity with English, English language often. And so that makes them different from uh, native-born U.S. workers, which allows them to actually specialize in the tasks that they do on the job. Um, and so companies, instead of having to, say, fire native workers when immigrants arrive, uh, some studies have actually found that 
companies are able to specialize their workers. So they're able to hire immigrants, and the immigrants are able to do tasks that are more um, labor-intensive, that involve more manual and use of physical skills, that involve use of quantitative analysis, whereas natives then tend to specialize in occupations that involve or tasks that involve more communication-intensive skills. Hmm. And the specialization actually can lead to gains in productivity. So it really ends up, immigration ends up improving certain conditions because it drives certain native workers to to go into management, communication, or any area where more skills, more specialization, more more management or communication skills are needed. Right, indeed. And, and so that sort of gets at one aspect of what's happening, which is that uh, native workers, uh, we've seen actually, tend to be quite mobile. They tend to not face competition from abroad and just sort of sit there and then do nothing about it. Hmm. Um, but they start to adjust to it very, very quickly. You know, they can move to occupations that require different tasks. Another type of mobility is that they actually might uh, leave a geographic area. So if natives, I mean, sorry, if immigrants start to come into New York City at really high rates, maybe they can move out. And when you move geographically, that can also somewhat offset uh, the competition for jobs in New York City. Um, and also recent evidence is finding that they're actually moving in terms of their educational attainment. So when more low-skilled immigrants come, that creates maybe competitive pressure in low-skilled labor markets. We actually see native workers or native individuals starting to increase their educational attainment such that they're no longer uh, competing with low-skilled workers. And there's actually a variety of benefits that economists know um, that increasing education is generally beneficial. Yeah. It would also, I guess, it might, I could see it increases the, the, the native employees, the native workers. They have the mobility, they have the, the opportunity to improve, to grow, to gain more, more education, and eventually more money at, at even a better rate than, an, than, a, than, I guess, the average immigrant coming in. Except that probably frustrates them because they have to change. And the so it might so some of the impact I guess of immigration is it does foster change. It fosters mm-hmm. it, it it turns the it turns the water over and it so it, it has benefits of turning the economy, but sometimes the turning of the economy it might better you, but it also might displace you and move you out of New York to, you know, Midwest or wherever. Sure, indeed. Um, something that's also interesting to mention is that behind all of this, and something that actually didn't, didn't make it into the final version of the article I wrote, uh, is that immigration to the United States, oftentimes um, people in the media or people in the news or politicians talk about it, um, and they say there are like 42 million immigrants in the U.S. now, and they almost make it sound like they sort of arrived overnight. They just appeared. <laughs> they pulled up in a um, bus. Actually, the reality is much different. And immigration to the United States, which largely um, in the recent decades really started to ramp up after uh, in the 1960s after they removed this uh, quota on, on the number of immigrants that could come, uh, it's been a rather slow phenomenon when you compare it to many other countries around the world. So to give you some numbers, um, the increase in immigration each year in the United States has, has averaged about 1% of our labor force. And that roughly 
amounts to about one to two million immigrant people each year. And so uh, you can compare that to some numbers like the numbers of college graduates. If you add up all the people in higher education who are getting degrees and going to start working and join the labor force, um, that's around three million each year right now. Uh, it's above three million. Um, so this slow growth in immigration uh, over many, many years has actually also maybe been part of the story huh. um, why economies are able to or why the U.S. is able to adjust uh, to immigration. Whereas if you brought the entire world's population and put it into the U.S. tomorrow, uh, we might expect to see a lot uh, of different effects. It's it, it is an interesting point. One more point you brought up uh, you you bring up before we take the break is if anyone is most adversely affected uh, by immigrants in the in the economic or in the labor force, it's usually the immigrants. It's it's the it's the recent immigrants that are more impacted by the even more recent immigrants, right? Indeed, amongst all those studies that study the impacts of immigration on economies receiving them. Um, They don't find much evidence of negative impacts on native workers, but when they look at um, existing immigrants that are already living there at the time that new immigrants arrive, they seem to be the ones that are most negatively affected. Um, And that sort of makes sense because they are the most directly substitutable. Um, They don't have the ability to leverage English language skills to move to different tasks and occupation, Oftentimes, um, they're not able to uh, further their education. And so uh, the evidence has definitely um, sort of maybe grown to a consensus that the group that are most harmed by more immigration is recent immigrants. Hmm. Also, I should mention that uh, there's been a very interesting study about um, academic mathematicians And there you have a labor market or a type of work um, where the product is generally you have to publish in um, these mathematics journals. Right. And the journals tend to keep the size or the number of articles that they can publish very fixed. Um, And so there, you know, if one additional article comes in or is submitted to the journal, that means, you know, the competition to get in is going to be much harder. So actually, uh, our profession in academics may be uh, more susceptible to uh, the presence of, of immigrants. other foreign-born academics. Interesting. Than the native workers. Oh, interesting. We'll take a break and come back more with uh, Dr. Kevin Shi as we uh, try to understand the impact immigra- immigrants have on our economy. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. When you think of immigration and you hear our political candidates talking about immigration, you know, we need to build a wall. We need to keep as many people out of the country as we can. Immigrants are messing up our economy. They're stealing our jobs. So we wanted to talk to the experts on the subject, find out what's really going on. And we brought in a true blue expert. Dr. Kevin, she is joining us. 
He uh, wrote a book in the conversation dot or an article in the conversation dot com. Why we're wrong to blame immigrants for our sputtering economies. And he's here reviewing the research. Uh, Dr. Kevin, she is an assistant professor of economics at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And um, again, has already taught us that when it comes to immigration, you know, there are still arguments about its impact. But a lot of the data, a lot of the research shows that um, in general, immigration doesn't create, I guess, major problems for our economy. Is that safe to say, Kevin? Sorry, I missed. I couldn't hear the question. Can you repeat it? Yeah. So, is it is it safe to say when we when we're looking at immigration, in the end, if you're not an economics professor or a very specialized kind of zero sum you know industry where there's only so many options, um, immigration is probably more of a positive thing for our economy than a negative thing. Um, indeed, I think that's true. Um, research that. I did on high-skilled immigration, looking at um, scientists and engineers that come to the United States to work, has showed really, really positive benefits for Native workers, in particular Native highly educated workers. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the fact that high-skilled workers, and those particularly in science and engineering, are responsible for producing innovation. And technological innovation is one of the key drivers of economic growth. So the innovation is is a huge benefit, and again, the innovation would probably with it bring jobs, opportunities, and I mean potentially, if you look at uh, some other Steve Jobs was a was a, was an immigrant as well as uh, Elon Musk, two examples of you know people that innovated, created some pretty powerful cases for uh, for immigration. What other examples do we have where immigration helps the economy as a whole? Yeah, so I think um, one uh, compelling piece to that or one compelling evidence um, is exactly like you said. There are entrepreneurs, immigrants um, create businesses. They stimulate the economy by – they can stimulate the economy by adding jobs when they open up firms like is the case with Elon Musk or uh, Steve Jobs, who is the son of an immigrant. Um, Another piece to it – is also that immigrants are, are, they're not just simply workers, but they're also consumers. You know, they go out and they buy goods. They increase the demand um, for goods and services. So in the long run, immigration could lead to more uh, investment and greater demand um, in the economy. And when you have greater demand, you may have more labor and thus uh, higher wages for people overall. What do, What is the answer about what it does to wages? I guess you say, it, does it drive wages up? Having having immigrant kind of workforces that come in, is it, I mean, I guess it, it displaces some Native workers. I mean, it might displace a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, uh, but it, it forces certain people in certain industries to go and get better educated. What does it do to wages? Does it drive it up or down? Yeah, so on average, again, sort of going back to the beginning of our discussion when you asked what are the, what are the actual effects of immigration, um, many of those studies that we talked about or that I mentioned, you know, they're looking at native wages, um, be it uh, the wages of low, less skilled native workers or high skilled native workers. Many of those studies uh, cannot find much significant impact on native wages either. Um, when you focus on skilled immigrants, as we have in my research uh, and those particularly in science and engineering, you can find 
uh, or you do find very, very uh, positive effects on the wages of native college-educated individuals uh, over the course of the long run. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think there there has been a lot that we've done uh, in terms of research, but I think a lot more needs to be done. There are many, many different types of labor markets, as you said. You know, we can think about 16-year-old um, high school workers in their uh, summer job, or we can think about older workers. Um, and a lot more research needs to be done to sort of unpack the the impacts on these very, very different groups of people. If, and maybe this is where others would argue it affects us, is if they're coming in and they 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 don't have the language, they don't have the specialized skills, so they're not coming in, you know, as, as graduate students, they're not coming in in the technical fields, they're mm-hmm. coming in um, just for a better life at a very just basic level, is it not an economic impact that um, that they would need more support by government, by institutions? Would they not need – would they not be a burden on healthcare systems, on welfare systems? You know, I think that is also a really good question. I think um, among less skilled workers that come in, uh, there is this fear that they may be a burden to the welfare system or that they don't pay taxes. Um, but the actual reality is they do pay taxes and they do contribute um, oftentimes. And this is even true for um, undocumented or illegal immigrants who are not here on any uh, with any um, legal uh, path to work. Um, oftentimes, they're, when they do work for an employer, they have to provide a social security number, so they provide a fake social security number, and taxes are withdrawn. Hmm. Right. Um, also, when they go to the store and they buy goods and services, they are paying sales tax on the things that they purchase. Um, and, you know, less skilled workers, uh, you know, I've sort of talked about my research in, in promoting, um, in high-skilled immigrants promoting um, growth and innovation. Uh, but there's some evidence out there that less skilled workers also help our economy. There's been work on the fact that less skilled immigrants uh, take jobs in local services, like they're the house cleaners or the nannies or the maids, um, and that has, has actually allowed female labor force participation to increase. So female uh, mothers or parents are able to actually join the the workforce that is native females um, because now there are less skilled immigrants around available to provide these services, uh, perhaps at a lower cost than before. When you hear a company say, "We we can't afford to build, you know, whatever widget here in the United States. We need to outsource it to other countries." Could could these workforces make it so that we could afford to build more things here? Yeah, and, so and why are they another, not being used that way? That's a that's a really good point. Um, that sort of is sometimes missed in debates on immigration, and so some people feel that immigrants do displace Americans from their job. Um, but then the question is not, uh, or rather, maybe in their minds they think if the immigrants didn't come in, Americans would have kept their job. Right. The alternative is that, well, if the immigrants did not come in uh, to provide their labor and services, companies may have outsourced those jobs in the end. And so we wouldn't have those jobs in the United States. Um, so so you strike at a really important question that in a globalized economy, uh, we're sort of not just 
competing amongst each other in the United States. Um, that is, companies aren't just competing amongst each other, but we're actually competing with everyone around the world. And so when other countries are able to provide goods and services at much lower cost because their workers either are more productive or more specialized in tasks or because of their economy, they accept lower wages, um, that's going to have an impact on our jobs here. And immigration is sort of one way to retain and keep jobs in the United States. Right. Is um, this global economy, there is a lot of pushback about the global economy with Brexit. I mean, I know in Finland they're even pushing back and in other places in the West and in the United States with kind of the nationalistic views of some of our candidates. What do you think is is the is the global marketplace, the global economy? Um, it seems like it's obviously kind of here to stay, but there's a ton of pushback on it. What what do you think the pushback does to the economy? What do you what what's happening with Brexit making this big move? That's impacting the economy maybe more than the immigration was. Yeah, so these proposals and these initiatives to shut off our borders and shut off interaction with the rest of the economy in our day and age, I think is going to be uh, if they are actually put in place in the United States, are going to be very very detrimental. We're already in a very integrated um, world. Our economies are linked and tied to others and sort of putting up borders, stopping trade, stopping interaction is going to harm many, many U.S. workers who work in those industries, who work in industries that trade heavily, who work in multinational corporations. Um, And so, and also another thing is that a lot of these, um, especially in the U.S. case, a lot of these proposals uh, by presidential candidates or other politicians to shut off the border or shut off interaction, uh, like uh, Donald Trump's proposal to build a wall mm-hmm. along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, suppose that suppose that they were right. Suppose that there is this really, really harmful impact uh, of immigration on U.S. workers. Even in that case, uh, providing um, these measures to close up the border don't really make sense. And that's because if you look at What's been happening with immigration from Mexico, both legal and undocumented, um, it's been declining tremendously over the past nine or ten years. Um, so that, you know, in the end, we may, if we build this wall, it may not serve any use as um, there are other forces at work already stemming the inflow of, of mm. immigrants from, from Mexico. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I guess the, the only, it would create jobs for a while. But it would it would stop the flow of uh, and I think the flow is important. Well, Kevin, as we wrap it up, um, we, we appreciate your insight into this. What would you say? I mean, I guess a lot of this is just fear, isn't it? And as we listen to our candidates, how do we not get caught up in the fear of the numbers behind all of the all of the immigration movement? Yeah, so I think that um, there are a couple of things that you've touched on about fear that are really important. I think fear drives a lot of this, um, and uncertainty really does wonders to how people think and how they make decisions. Um, and part of that is rather natural, um, the fear of, of losing one sort of cultural identity or becoming a minority in the country that you live in. Um, one part of that is just that we, as as academics who study this, maybe need to do a better job of disseminating what uh, what we're finding to the general public, um, and 
anybody who's in our field that has followed uh, recent debates in immigration um, has known that they've become really, really specialized. We're squabbling over very, very, or the recent squabbles have been over very, very fine details about statistical analysis, so on and so forth, that often gets lost in the in the public mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we can do a better job of communicating to others what we're finding um, to hopefully uh, sort of assuage those fears that everybody has. Well, and you did it here, Kevin. Thank you so much. Dr. Kevin She. thank you for your great work. Keep it up. Thanks so much, Matt. You bet. Thanks for being with us. We'll take a break. Come back to a little Coach's Corner. Wrap it all up, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This message brought to you by Bernie Sanders supporters for the extermination of cockroaches. Roaches. Feel the burn. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Here's the deal. And you're, you, we throw out the word immigration and boy, everything tightens up. Shut down the you know the borders. We're we're afraid. Except when it comes to the you know the economic side, uh, the majority of economists are arguing that immigration is good. Now, security a whole different issue. We should we should have secure borders. I'm not sure a wall is the best idea. Just like with Mr. Pluto, the planet Pluto, who wants to build a wall around the country, around the world, in order to stop all the meteors from coming in and the asteroids from destroying Mother Earth. It may not work. and Things are going to slip through. But safety, we need safety. We need safer borders. Is it going to impact our national identity? Yes. Our national identity will change. And it might change for, for the better. And the example I use, because I live in Utah, where we have a lake called the Great Salt Lake, which, by the way, is just a dead lake um, with a lot of salt and saline in it. and But it's fed by a river called the Jordan River, much like over in uh, Israel, with the Dead Sea fed by the Jordan River. And then there are a bunch of other lakes that feed this uh, the, the Great Salt Lake. The Great Salt Lake's a massive lake. Except it's dead because there's no flow. There's no out exit. There's no output out of the Great Salt Lake. It just goes into the desert. And so the dilemma is without an input and an output, there's no flow. And without flow, there's no life. Without an immigration into our country, there's no input. And with people leaving the country, there's no output. A a healthy living being needs ins and outs. It needs to turn the life, the economy, the, the life. It needs to grow. So let's just look at immigration economically as an opportunity to create more flow economically. It doesn't mean we can't regulate it better. It doesn't mean we don't need to watch our visas because we do. But we also can accept and love and be excited about people coming in and bringing new life. We'll take a break, folks. Helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, my friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach. Because you weren't born with a manual. You need a user's manual, an owner's manual. Don't we kind of know? You no. don't really need a book. I don't know. Do you? Do you know? I think we do. Do you? I think there's enough trial and error that's happened before that if, if someone entered the world, say, in two weeks, that they'd know what's going on or someone could help them. No. Right. Exactly. Someone would help them. Their parents. Yeah. But you're, you're, then you're, in adolescence, are you going to turn to another adolescent and say, hey, Help me through this. That's really the best way to do it. Right. Always talk to your friends as a kid to find out what the best you know, way yeah. to progress through life. Where do babies come from, Jerry? It's not the way to learn. The way to learn is from your parents. The funny thing is parents don't even know how to have these discussions. We don't even know. So our, our goal on the show is to give parents the tools to lead their lives is and it, help them teach their children. Is it not, no, not so much that they don't know, they just don't want to? Well, no, let's think of this. Okay. Do you know automatically that your child has ADHD or do you only know about your child having ADHD because you've read about it, studied it, heard about it, thought about it, found out about it, heard a professor teach about it? You had to have learned it somewhere. No one naturally thinks, boy, this child has an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Nobody thinks that. I just think this kid can't study. I think I just get annoyed saying, settle down and pay attention. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stephen Wright has HD ADHD. Ooh, High definition attention oh. deficit. See, that. Yeah. That's the best kind. That's, it could be the worst kind because then everything's in high def, so it's even more distracting. It's horrible. <laughs> I can see that guy's poor. <laughs> Today, we will be getting into selfishness. Is it learned or are you born selfish? I think you're born... I think you're born free. That's a great song, by the way. doesn't really answer the question. You are born free. (laughs) You also – so some people just believe, you know, fallen man is just inherently selfish. Hmm. Or is it that we are inherently enculturating selfishness into everybody? That's just how we do it. Do we raise them up or is it a genetic flaw? We'll talk about it. Hmm. Nurture nature. Whichever. Nurture nature. How yeah. do we get to this concept and this, this state of being more selfish? We'll be talking with an expert on that who's written all about its selfishness. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm not going to give you the headline because – You'll give it away. You'll give it away. So we'll get into that plus some more headlines about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump just from their neat forum that they had last night. It was neat. So neat. <laughs> Super neat. Sitting in an air, airplane hangar or something. And hey, by the way, if we asked you – about Aleppo. Yes. So somebody said, okay, let's talk about Aleppo. What? And you're like, a, a leper? Excuse Not me? a leper. No. That's different. Aleppo. Would you have a clue what we're asking about? Well, one of our candidates didn't, probably should have. And no, is that no. fair? Is it a fair standard? I mean, he should have. Should everyone in the world know... <laughs> But Aleppo. when you're running for president of the United States, yeah. we're currently engaged in that area. Yes, you probably should know where Aleppo is. And apparently, like Donald Trump should have known what the triad, the nuclear triad is. 
Was but, he in, was he unaware of that? Well, not last night, oh. but a while ago, he there was a big brouhaha about he doesn't know the triad. Right. But others did. <laughs> Little Marco. Yeah. Polo. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. What else should you know? What don't you need to know? Plus other headlines, crazy bill that uh, a rail worker in the UK got for taxes, trillions of dollars, a $14 trillion tax bill. We'll get to that as well. But first, to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Donald Trump announced in a national security speech at the Union League of Philadelphia yesterday that his plans to defeat the Islamic State will include four parts military warfare, cyber warfare, financial warfare, and ideological warfare. Additionally, Trump said that within 30 days of taking office, he would ask military generals for a plan to bring down the terrorist group, despite the fact that he has previously questioned their knowledge. A Russian fighter jet came within 10 feet of, a, of an American plane over the Black Sea on yesterday, characterized as an unsafe close-range intercept. According to the Pentagon spokesman Jeff Davis, the incident in which the, plan, the planes came dangerously close to one another lasted about 19 minutes. He said these actions have the potential to unnecessarily escalate tensions and could result in a miscalculation or accident. The Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations is opening an inquiry into the pharmaceutical company Mylan's pricing of the EpiPen it announced yesterday. The EpiPen, which stops potentially fatal allergic reactions by injecting a precise dose of epinephrine, now costs about $600 for a two-pack, up from roughly $100 when Mylan acquired EpiPen in 2007. Last month, they announced it would they would offer a generic version of the EpiPen in response to backlash over the skyrocketing prices. And lastly, more than a week after he refused to stand for the national anthem, Colin Kaepernick's jersey is the number one seller for the National Football League. As of yesterday afternoon, the 49ers quarterback, his red number seven uniform is the league store's top selling item, and his white jersey also appears among the top 15 sellers. So there you have it, Matt. That's the way to get famous. Wow, that's one way to do it, isn't it? Start a scandal. <laughs> so we need to start a scandal. And your jersey will be the number one seller. I know. Some have speculated that he started this protest because it looked as if the 49ers were going to cut him. Oh, really? So if you protest in this way and then they cut you, it looks like they're cutting you for political reasons, yeah. not because you're not a good quarterback. That seems like a far stretch. I don't know. It could have, it could have worked. It worked because they haven't cut him yet. Yeah. So I we need a scandal. I'm going to – we'll have to create some scandal to get notoriety. Well, thank you, Caitlin. Okay, we got a a lot to get to. First, let's talk just uh, quickly about the Gary Johnson incident. By the way, uh, in the Stein, the Green Party was arrested, not arrested, has has a what do they call it? A has a warrant for her arrest. Yeah. So one of the presidential candidates has a warrant for their arrest, and amazingly, it's not Hillary or Donald. (laughs) She spray painted a message on some uh, construction equipment. Yeah, you're not allowed to do so that. So she's been, there's a, a warrant for vandalism. For the, she's a doctor. She's not a construction worker. She shouldn't be spray painting. She equipment. was she was protesting. Right. Busted. So, so I think you, you know Gary. It seems like Gary Johnson's the only clean candidate now. He's the only one without some ties to, you know, some illegal activity. Alleged illegal activity. But the problem with Gary Johnson, apparently, is um, he was asked in an interview, I believe it was this morning. Yes, it was on uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC. To 
and we have the audio. Let's just play the audio and and everybody get ready to answer it in your own head. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> oh yeah. Were all those people that, like, you know, crossed in the boats to Europe and they're leaving because of the war. Yeah, all the refugees, they came from the city. Okay. Not all, but, you know, a good chunk. I I love him because that was the most honest thing you will see in the entire race as a candidate being honest. Maybe he, just, maybe he just doesn't pronounce it Aleppo. Maybe he knows it as Aleppo. Yeah. And so if yeah, that's yeah. a great point. Or he just has no idea what the name of that city is. Well, and the interviewer was like, "You're kidding me." And that's pretty bold. He said, "Are you Syria?" <laughs> well, later. Oh, you mean Syria? <laughs> later, NBC caught up with him again, one of their reporters, and talked to him. And it was interesting because he was tr- you could see in my in the way I looked at it, he was trying to kind of walk it back and say yes yeah, Syria is very important but then he came back I think he abandoned the attempt yeah and just said that was my mistake I should know this the reporter's like was that like a gotcha moment is that an unfair question he goes no I should no. know this yeah I just I just messed up he should have oh, just okay. said you know what my bad okay I didn't have an email server and I don't hate women now if you remember uh George W. Bush, the first time he ran, right. there was a reporter, it was like North Carolina, I think, just a local reporter yeah. started asking him the names of world leaders. Right. And and it was, I don't know how important these countries were at the time, so should that be at the top of mind for the, the, the uh, presidential candidate? So I'm not sure if it was a, it was fair. So I mean that that that's felt more like a gotcha situation. Like, right. Who's this guy? Oh, you don't know who he is. You're not qualified. I don't well, know. But this is uh, like in the news almost every is, day. It, it is. It, it, but again, we're not Donald Trump. We don't get our intelligence right. reports from the news. You don't watch cable news all day. And Gary Johnson probably as a governor wasn't he of Colorado? Uh, New Mexico. Oh, New Mexico. He probably hasn't been in a lot of you know briefings, intelligence briefings. All you have to do is watch the nightly news. Ten minutes a night, exactly. you watch a lot But then again, simultaneously, we're all beating the crud out of Donald for that's the only yeah. thing he does. So and this, so Aleppo, he should know Aleppo. He this, should know that. This is a serious gaffe, Except, but it's one in this election that will actually stick, whereas all the stuff the other two have done, right. just sort of, eh, whatever, moving on. But... So let's just hear what Hillary Clinton said about Aleppo. <coughs> this isn't fair. She'll get to it right here. <coughs> Breathe deep. You get it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it's, it's well, let's get, we'll get back to that we'll one because um, I, I think she's she's warming up and now she, she'll get to the it. Green Party candidate spray painted yeah. what she, she spray painted. I approve this message on a Caterpillar bulldozer. So really? Yeah. And there's other other people had spray painted slogans at this protest. And uh, it's a it's a Dakota access pipeline that's going in. Right. that They don't like across some uh, I think some tribal land. And so she spray painted on the, the on this bulldozer, and that's why she's in the news. For her. See, 
This is where vandalism. So she's so that's you know now she'll have a warrant for her arrest. Um, who knows what will happen with Hillary? Probably nothing when you think right. about it. Um, except one thing, Donald keeps you know loving on Putin. Uh, and again, I think they're doing a show in New York. If Donald doesn't win, they'll do, they're going to do just a two one man show. Uh-huh. It's, oh, nice. it's called Put Putin on the Ritz. Putin on the Ritz, isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, so uh, I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what you do. We could just let's let's just talk about Hillary's uh, impact on uh, how she hurt the military. <coughs> Excuse me. No, you're okay. Um, Excuse me. (coughs) (coughs) She get it? (coughs) She probably can't hear the questions. Maybe that's... (laughs) She keeps coughing over the questions. That makes it difficult to... Super sad. talk there. Hey, did you hear about this guy, the rail worker? We got to talk about this. A rail worker told... He, he's in England, Kay. You know, how much can a rail worker make? Hmm. Um, but he's in a financial pickle because he was sent a tax notice for $14 trillion. That's, that's an eye-opening bill. It's huge. <laughs> like, whoa. Giles Hembro received the notice telling him that he may be paying too little tax to the tune of a 14-figure sum. And uh, Mr. Hembro said, I have had lots of tax errors recently, so I thought it was just an update, you know, just an update on his taxes. When I noticed that the figure at the bottom, I had to do a double take. It was incredibly surprising, of course. It was such a big number. If the tax change did come through as a bill, he would end up paying it in monthly installments of $1.2 trillion a month. It would take him like 370 million years. (laughs) That's rough. That's like nation-level debt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you, be grateful you live in America. Yeah. Taxes are never I mean, 14 trillion. That's our, that's our total debt is like 17 trillion, right? I think so. It keeps 18 going 18 trillion. It sounds like this has happened to him before, though. Yeah. He's, he's apparently had an issue. You know what he needs is a good tax man. That's the problem. Right. It's hard to find a good tax man nowadays. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to meet with Matt Hudson, who's going to teach us about selfishness. Is selfishness a learned behavior, or is it something we're teaching our children and those around us? Are we teaching them to be more selfish? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. When I first received word I owed $14 trillion, I was a bit distraught, to be honest. After spending a number of hours running some numbers, I came to the conclusion that I couldn't possibly come up with that kind of money. I even spoke with dozens of tax collectors, as well as my accountant, but to no avail. I confided in a dear friend of mine who suggested I speak with Hedgley and Smythe, and I'm so glad I did. After taking a look at my case, the tax professionals at Hedgley and Smythe were able to reduce the $14 trillion to the more manageable figure of $7.6 trillion, which means I'll only be making payments for the next 180 million years. That suits me. I wasn't even planning on being alive for that amount of time. (laughs) Thanks, Hedgley and Smythe. Hedgley and Smythe, helping you recover your trillions. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you turn on the TV or go online, you'll find two main stories prevail in the news. Some stories feature all the terrible things that people do. Others highlight the goodness of human nature. So what is our inherent nature? Are we born good or are we born selfish and evil? Here to discuss is the author of the article, Selfish is Learned, Mr. Matt Hudson. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You bet. You, um, you, you've written quite the article, and uh, it appeared in Nautilus. Uh, and, and I guess what I, what I want to know, you may be answering the age-old issue, uh, inherently good, inherently bad. What, uh, what have you come up with? Yeah, so this is something that's been debated for centuries, millennia. Um, what, is the, what is human nature? Are we good people, uh, or are we you know, filled with sin, and we really need society to um, hold us to uh, better ideals? Um, and the research, based mostly on the work of David Rand, a psychologist at Yale, uh, points to the idea that people are naturally cooperative. Um, and it's not necessarily that we are born that way. That's you know, There's some research on that, but that's not what this addresses. This is um, what are our intuitions, and those intuitions could be uh, genetic or they could be learned. And so he focuses on our, our learned intuitions and uh, argues that most people have learned the intuition um, to be cooperative in most situations. Yeah, to get out and, I mean, I guess... It's survival, right? It, it, the more people we know that like us, that it, and it's positive, um, probably, I guess, increases survivability. Yeah, humans are very social, and um, a lot of the things that we do, we really rely on other people for protection, for safety, for uh, mating, for uh, building large projects. I mean, look at a city. You couldn't build a city by yourself. It's just a bunch of people cooperating and trusting each other. Uh, and so there's definitely a benefit to helping other people out. Uh, they, in turn, help you out, and we accomplish great things. And in this, I guess part of uh, the the process is how, how you play it, I guess how you're trained to play the game of life in, in a cooperative way versus, uh, I guess, a more competitive way? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's an important point. Uh, our intuitions are, uh, we, they develop based on our experiences. So if you are in a situation where cooperation tends to pay off, where you scratch someone else's back and they end up scratching yours, then you develop this uh, heuristic or this rule of thumb that uh, generosity and cooperation and, and prosociality are uh, productive, are helpful, that they lead to success, and you're more likely to use that as your sort of default choice. You're not always going to think about, okay, now is this, is helping this person going to help me out? Um, it's just going to be your natural inclination to, you know, be a good person. Whereas if you're in a situation where it's sort of dog-eat-dog and you learn that, um, you know, if you help other people out, they're just going to take advantage of you and stab you in the back you might develop a different intuition, and that intuition might be to uh, to be selfish. Right. Is And th- we talked about it, and in fact, we've uh, talked to David before about 
his book and his model. And it talk it gets into the the prisoner's dilemma, which is a game that they play to show you know decision making. Where if I if I benefit you, or if we work together, we can make more. But if I become selfish, then you become selfish, and we get entrenched. And but what really, I guess. That that's that's kind of an experiential process, right? Not just the game, but in life. If I am if I am constantly treated in a in a competitive way, if I seem to be losing anytime I choose cooperation because others aren't going for cooperation, I, I will just naturally go selfish, won't I? And and it, it might it, it might not even seem like a moral issue to, issue to me. It might just seem like a survival issue. That's right. So the prisoner's dilemma, is, as you know, it's the simple economics game that's used in a lot of uh, research in economics and in psychology and, uh, and other fields. And it's kind of a metaphor for life. Uh, if you play a, a single round of this game, you decide whether to you know, cooperate or defect with the other person, and the other person decides the same thing. And if you um, both cooperate, then you know you get some reward, but if you cooperate and the other person defects, then, then you're punished for it. Um, and it's really, it really becomes a powerful model of human interaction when you play a, a series of repeated rounds with the same person, um, because then some more complicated strategies can become involved. Uh, in just one round, it's, it always pays to defect, no matter what the other person does. But in multiple rounds, if you do that, then the other person is going to you know, take revenge against you. So you might want to cooperate uh, to sort of signal to the other person and hope that the other person doesn't take advantage of you. So it can get kind of complicated. Um, it's in interesting. General, it's- that component of time, so however yeah. long this relationship's going to go on, may determine if being selfish or selfless is going to serve better long term. That's right. And, and most of our interactions in life, uh, most of our important interactions are with people with whom we will interact again. So it helps to build up this reputation or build up this level of trust or this standard of cooperation so that it can continue going forward. It's such an interesting um, dynamic, I guess, and it shows that it, how you how you are trained up and as a child, if if my parents are constantly selfishly going against me, I could be enculturated into buying into the idea that selfishness play, pays off long term. Um, but then that that will change based on who I hang out with and who I'm married to and my ability to to read the situation. I guess that's right. And and so uh, Rand and his colleagues actually tested this idea. So in one series of experiments, they um, they asked people to play what's called a public goods game. Uh, basically, there are four people. They're each given some money. Uh, they can each decide to put some of that money into a shared pool. Whatever money is in that pool gets multiplied and then redistributed. So uh, selfishly, it's you know for one person, it, it makes sense to not put any money into that pool because you get to keep your money and then you also get to share in know, whatever anyone else puts in there. Right. And so they had people play this game in various conditions. Some people, they, they asked them to make the, their decision very quickly, uh, which kind of forced them to go by intuition. Uh, other people, they 
you know, encouraged them to use, they explicitly said, you know, think intuitively about this. And in general, they, in general, they found that people were more generous when they thought intuitively. Um, so they put more money in when they had to react quicker. Uh, so that sort of supported this general idea that people are naturally cooperative. Hmm. But they found that this pattern didn't hold for people who said that they, in general, in life, could not trust other people. So it's as if those people had not learned, had not developed this intuition that cooperation pays off. And therefore, when they had to think quickly and use their intuition, they did not become more generous. Oh, in, so in, intuition, we, we might think of it as a mystical thing, like my gut just tells me this, but the gut may just be your history experienced. Exactly. So apparently over a, a lifetime, um, people can develop different intuitions. And they also uh, Rand published another paper a couple of years after that showing how quickly intuitions can change. And it can take just a few minutes. So in this study, subjects either played uh, repeated rounds of the prisoner's dilemma where they might co- uh, interact with someone for maybe eight rounds. And there, in these multiple round games, it pays to cooperate because then other people will cooperate with you going forward. And, um, and so it encourages people to be generous. Other people play just single rounds where it pays to not be, not, uh, be selfless and to just sort of defect hmm. and take. Uh, and so co- then comparing these two groups, they then played... Uh, this public goods game. And the researchers found that those who had uh, just done the multiple rounds of Prisoner's Dilemma for about 20 minutes, they were more likely to cooperate in this public goods game. So just, you know, in under half an hour, their intuitions had changed hmm. so that they were different from the from the people who had been encouraged to be it's like It's like they were primed, right? I guess so you could be primed to be good in the moment um, just by what you were doing before you got there. Yeah, so it doesn't take a whole lifetime to make someone a good person or a bad person. It can just take 20 minutes of interacting with people in one way versus another way, and that can change your, your intuitions. How interesting. Whether it needs to be selfish or selfless. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess even if I just went through a really crazy moment where I was selfishly <laughs> totally taken advantage of, I wonder if if I then was able to go debrief with somebody who could help me see it clearly or differently, if that might prime me again to have a better interpretation again tomorrow. Yeah, it's possible that even just one uh, short interaction with someone that's maybe a minute long, that could even change your your default reactions to people. Which tells us, I guess, we have a lot of power with other people um, to influence them or prime them for selflessness. Yeah, it's sort of this pay it forward idea. Uh, if you're nice to someone else, then that could change that person's day so that uh, they end up being nice to the next person and so on. Wow. Crazy good. That's great. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Matt Hudson, and Matt is the author of the book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and sane. He also uh, is the book, uh, the author, uh, I mean, you can go find that book at magicalthinkingbook.com. 
Um, and we'll continue the discussion of his article, Selfishness is Learned. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Give it to me now. I want today. I want tomorrow. I want to wear them like braids in my hair, and I don't want to share them. That naughty girl from Willy Wonka. She needs to share. Shame on her. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're speaking with Matt Hudson. He is the author of an article that appeared in Nautilus, uh, Selfishness is Learned. And he's also the author of the book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Matt, thank you again so much for being with us. My pleasure. When we when we get into this, and uh, and I guess your book, uh, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, as well, um, people, there's just basic, I, I guess, psychological terms or psychological conditions that are going on. That, is that what you refer to as magical? Just something that works that we don't know is working. Um, I use a, a kind of a specific definition of magical thinking. Um, so some people use it to describe just sort of irrationality or um, belief that something great is going to happen, sort of irrational optimism. Um, I use it to refer basically to belief in the supernatural. So magical thinking would be believing in luck or destiny or mind over matter or life after death, that mm. sort of thing. Yeah. And it can be subconscious belief. So even if you say, I don't believe in luck, but then you end up crossing your fingers. Um, that signals, you know, you're behaving as though you believe. So it suggests this sort of subconscious or intuitive belief. And so I would call that magical thinking, too. Fascinating. And in the book, you bring up seven laws of magical thinking. Maybe just take us on a journey. What are some of those? Um, so one of them is, um, you might hear this phrase a lot, uh, everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's this belief in destiny or fate or, or karma um, or divine providence, the idea that things that happen to us are somehow guided by an intentional universe. So good things happen to good people or bad things happen to bad people or you're put on a certain path so that something can happen or that so you can learn a particular lesson. And I think this emerges from our, our social instinct. So we, we're used to thinking about uh, the intentionality behind events because a lot of things that happen to us or around us are caused by people. And so it pays to think about who did this and why. Right. And then we kind of generalize and apply that thinking to even natural events like hurricanes. Like who, who, why, why did this hurricane happen? Was it um, you know, to punish a city for something? Like you know, people said that New Orleans was hit by a hurricane a few years ago because of the amount of sin there was in that city. Um, so it was easy to think, like, you know, what is the meaning behind this event? That's kind of a, an intuition that we have. It's, it's, I guess it, a lot of this is about making up the meaning, right? And we, we're looking for it, and it, it seems, too, to all come from a more social, you know, to create some social connection, some social meaning that's healthier with others. Yeah, so 
there are a couple of benefits to magical thinking. Um, I'm, an a- I'm an atheist and a skeptic, and I don't believe in magic, at least yeah. on an explicit level. Um, but I can still see how, even if these beliefs are uh, mistaken, that there can be benefits to them. Um, and one of them is that they can bring a sense of meaning to the world. So there's some research showing that um, when something tragic happens to someone, uh, if that person sees it as the work of a, of a good God or is somehow you know, meant to be or, or part of their life's plan, then they recover better psychologically from that tragic event huh. uh, because they see, oh, there must be a silver lining here, and then they look for that silver lining, and then they find or create a silver lining, uh, and it helps the, the recovery process. Yeah, and and it gives it. I yeah, it ties the meaning to the event to hopefully like a bigger hope. I guess that's right. So uh, instead of just seeing um, a death or an accident or a job loss as just all around bad, um, you kind of think, no, is there something positive to be found in this? Is there some way to strengthen? Uh, myself or my relationships with others or to see the world in a different way. And it kind of motivates you to go through that growth process. Hmm. What are some more uh, examples of some of the laws, the magic uh, laws of magical thinking? Um, One is this idea that objects carry essences. And so we value celebrity memorabilia or um, family heirloom. Um, So just, if an object is just touched or owned by someone <laughs> you care about, yeah. it somehow makes that object special. There's some sort of magical essence to it. Um, and so people will um, think that they'll you know, play better wearing um, maybe shoes that have been uh, touched by their favorite sports hero or, um, or they'll feel comforted. <laughs> wearing a sweater that had been owned by their grandparents, um, or they'll feel cursed. A lot of people would not want to wear an article of clothing that had been worn by a Nazi, for instance, even even if it had been washed. There's just something slightly creepy about that. Yeah, don't let that in our house. And and again, I guess that's kind of the – some of it seems a little irrational, and it's – but it's so accepted and rational. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's so... Uh, we don't think of it as magical thinking. It just seems um, kind of natural that, of course, you would want to own this, you know, thing that had been owned by a celebrity or that you wouldn't want to wear a sweater that Hitler had worn. <laughs> right. you know? Well, I, we had a one of our kids... Uh, a basketball star threw his wristband up into the stands and my kid brought it home and all I could think was disgusting. That yeah. thing is just full of sweat. But yeah. he's like, Dad, it's the greatest sweat ball I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> what, Matt, what are some other uh, magical thinking issues we're dealing with or laws? Uh, a common one is belief in luck. So we have all these things that we do, like wearing lucky shirts or crossing our fingers or knocking on wood. Um, And that results, I think, from just our our pattern finding. Um, 
So people or animals in general learn by finding patterns in the world between cause and effect or recognizing certain things as uh, in the same category. Um, like those are both trees, for instance, even though they look slightly different. Mm. And so by naturally looking for patterns in the world, we might think that, okay, if I do this and then that happens, maybe this caused that. Uh, if I wear this shirt and then I win a tennis match, maybe the shirt helped me win the tennis match, and then you attribute luck to this shirt. Uh, and there's some research showing that that, in some cases, can actually be beneficial in that it can provide a sense of control uh, when you lack control. Hmm. So there was one study where subjects were given a golf ball, and they were asked to make 10 golf putts. And half of them were told that the golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And those subjects actually made about 35% more successful golf putts than the other subjects. Really? So it just it's sort of a placebo effect. It yeah. made them uh, feel more effective and it enhanced their performance. It, it, but, the, but the answer was still in the person, right? They didn't have a magical force driving the ball to the hole. It was just believing more in yourself. So it is a placebo effect, I guess. And, and a lot of this magic might seem – it might be placebo, but the results still show that they're still there. It works. Yeah. So the, yeah. Yeah, so the effects come not through some um, magical or mystical force in the world. It's all self-generated. It's sort of, um, it's like Dumbo's, um, Dumbo flying yeah. with the feather. He believed he could, and therefore that's what made him able to do it. Well, and I guess that's a great theory until all of a sudden you believe you're really lucky and you've lost your house, your car in a gambling problem. Um, and I guess the crazy thing about humans is we could just keep, you know, well, luck will change tomorrow, right? You know, luck, it'll be different tomorrow. I just need to wear yeah, my so different that's, socks. That's right. So that's one of the dangers of magical thinking. Um, gambling, for instance, we might rely too much on luck and think that it will guide us through. And so maybe you don't need to prepare for a test or for a presentation and, um, Maybe you don't need to see a doctor because if you just believe you'll get better, then you'll get better. Mm. Um, so you really need to, you know, pay attention to science and and medicine and uh, rationality and think, okay, these are the the steps that I logically need to take to uh, make what I want to happen happen. But then magical thinking can be sort of, you know, once you've done all you can do, otherwise uh, it can add a little bit of extra support. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, too, and just reconnect us back to the fact that that um, beliefs matter. What we believe really matters to us, whether it's factual or not. That's right. That's uh, I mean, everything that we do is guided by by our beliefs. Um, We can't really know reality directly. It's all interpreted through our beliefs perceptions and our thinking. So uh, beliefs are really important in that way. And I guess the hard thing about beliefs and questioning beliefs is you'd have to question them with more beliefs. So <laughs> how does how does one question their own thinking without being trapped in their thinking? Um, that's a really deep question. Yeah. Uh, somehow we get by. Yeah, we do. Um, it's yeah, such... I, I would say intuition. 
Yeah. I mean, if we were to logically think about everything that we do and say and think uh, scientifically, then we wouldn't get very far. And that's, that's why we have to rely on, on reflexes and intuition and rules of thumb. It's great advice. Great advice. Well, Matt, we appreciate your time on the show again. And, um, Good luck with uh, your book, Magical Thinking, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Interesting, interesting stuff. There's so much to learn, folks. Your thinking matters. And interesting, too, your thinking influences other people's thinking. It's uh, There's power in this cooperative world we live in. There's also power in your intuition, that sense, that deeper sense inside of you of what's going on um, that higher power you believe in there's power there we'll take a break come back continue the journey helping you see the good in the world this is the matt townsend show stick with us whenever you find yourself before a judge Think before you plea. If you've recently gone through a messy breakup with your significant other and you want to get back at them by vandalizing their car, think before you key. If you've had too much Dr. Pepper to drink on a long road trip and decide to stop on the side of the road to relieve yourself, think before you wee. And the next time you're taking a court-ordered class on decision-making called Thinking Matters and are toying with the idea of attempting a getaway via the ceiling, please think before you flee. This message brought to you by thinkers across America. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you. It's so interesting how we we are connected and uh, our goal, if we want to influence people, you got to look at your own thinking, right? And then know that everything you're doing, everything you're saying is going to influence others as well. Um, <laughs> here's an example of where you got to be careful what you bring on the airplane. Airline officials say they called for help after a passenger was found stowing a monkey in his shirt during a Las Vegas-bound flight. It's a big monkey. (laughs) The Frontier Airlines spokesperson Richard Oliver says the incident happened Tuesday night on a flight from Columbus to Las Vegas. Oliver says the passenger broke policy by not informing the airline that he was bringing a service animal on board and then refused to turn over documents verifying the monkey's status. So we've talked about service animals. Um, uh, what do we call those, Terry? The the animals that – comfort animals. Yes. Monkey see, monkey do? No, that's different. That's a different one. Um, like a comfort animal, yeah. you might need a dog or a cat. To a help. turkey. We had a turkey once. We had a turkey once. once. There was photographs and online. And then you know, we had the one – the guy that wanted to bring the mule on, his comfort mule. Um so this guy brings a monkey on board, but doesn't tell everybody. Now, you can't have you, a monkey on board. You must board. declare all monkeys before boarding the airplane. Well, I, and I would bet pretty much all animal, all animals ought to be declared. 
I mean, I don't want a guy next to me with a cobra, right? What, even if it's a comfort cobra. This animal, the monkey, by the way, was a certified service animal. Oliver says the animal was brought uh, surreptitiously onto the plane in a duffel bag and never got loose during the flight. It wasn't immediately clear whether the passenger uh, faces consequences or not. You know who else was on that flight? Who? <coughs> oh, was it on Hillary's airplane? I think so. That's why there's that buzz in the background. Oh, yeah. This is Hillary's <coughs> Hillary commenting about the monkey. <coughs> Hillary, how'd you feel about the monkey? <coughs> wow, she still can't get rid of that cough. I worry about her. She's got to kick that. You know what? I think she might be allergic to monkeys. That's another problem with just having any service animal on board is, you know, what if you're allergic? Hmm. I could send you into a coughing fit. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Terry? Any other news that we have to pay attention to this hour? That just burning in your heart. I found this interesting. Formula One, yeah. right? It's a national, uh, international. I'm turning into Hillary Clinton. Hold on. Oh, he's having a moment. Excuse me. Had to had to cough up that whatever obstruction was. Um, so for, uh, Formula One, international racing circuit. Uh, yeah. As this puts it, if NASCAR is known for souped-up stock cars and salt-of-the-earth drivers, Formula One is about space-age engineering and globe-trotting racers. Right, billion dollar cars, all kinds of crazy money being thrown around in these uh, different uh, races that they have. As 400 million global viewers for each individual race they have, right? Yeah. So uh, it, the, the series was purchased by Liberty Media, a cable television conglomerate with stakes in Charter Communications, Sirius XM Radio, and the Atlanta Braves. Really? They purchased the series for $4.4 billion. Wow. That's a... That's a serious I, – I had no idea Formula One was so big. So big. It, it, $4.1 billion? $4.4 billion Boy, what they sold the series for. Amazingly, that's still $2 billion short of the NCAA football it is. revenue <laughs> of the top 10 teams in the – Now, the television audience has grown by 40% since NBC Sports took over the domestic broadcast wow. rights in 2013. Yeah. More access, people watch, all that kind of stuff. But Formula One. $4.4 billion. Don't ask Gary Johnson what Formula One is. Gary, like, what? Formula One? Isn't that an ingredient in Wrigley's gum, Formula One? I think it's what children eat before they uh, are old enough to have solids. <laughs> and yeah. another story. Yeah. For years, food technology companies have referred to their products. Food technology companies. Have referred to their products. As cultured uh -huh. or lab-grown. Ugh. Hold on, lab-grown food products. Yes. So, what are we? Are we talking about animals? Meat. They grow meat-like products in laboratories. So they're they're trying to figure out what are how we're supposed to refer to this. Do we refer to it as cultured? Is it lab-grown? What's the most appetizing way to say fake food? No, hold on now. Yeah. Do they grow this meat? On the bones? No. And under the skin of animals? Petri dishes. Ugh. Are you serious? Yeah. And we're calling it, they want to know, they want the, uh, They want people to say, should we call it cultured yeah. food? Well, that's what they call it, cultured or lab-grown. These companies... 
It's alive. There's, these companies making their first foray into the public eye. They need to have a more PR-friendly <laughs> okay. name. Okay. okay. Pro- pink protein. Pink protein remember pockets. The, Dr. Frankenfurter. Remember the pink slime that was yeah. in hamburgers? Yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, to get over that, there's a push to coalesce around a new term. Okay. I wanted to ask you to what? see if this works. Okay, okay. Clean food. No. 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 Uh, balabnia. Balab- balabnia. Can you pass me a slice of the balabnia? <laughs> by, by opting for this terminology, the industry hopes to better communicate to people the ethos behind their products rather than the actual process as how they're created. Man alive. How about pink protein pockets? <laughs> Protein pockets. Protein pink pockets. pockets. Huh. <laughs> pink pockets. They're, they're trying to get, you know, up next oh, to say like is... clean energy, yeah. clean coal. Oh, I'm sick It's a now. positive term. I just invited someone to lunch and now I'm sick. Okay, we'll have to come back to this. Yeah. We'll come back next hour, discuss what to call cultured or lab-grown food that's not grown on the bones of an animal. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, fellow journeyers on this crazy thing called life. We are on the journey of life and making it one day at a time. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach. Your guide on the side, here to give you the information, the tools you need to healthy, grow a healthier, happier life. Today, we will be talking about how to overcome life's difficulties by redirecting your thinking, reframing your life, your world. Maybe changing the name of the product you're trying to sell and pitch yeah. on humanity. Right. What would you, what would you, what would you, what do you mean by that? Instead of lab grown meat, you could call it clean food. Or Balabnia. (laughs) Dr. Beefenstein's happy time meat. I would just suggest (laughs) shave the meat before you sell it. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it has some, you know, abnormal hair growth. Oh, you should shower it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always shower. I like to always wash. And uh, dis- not because it doesn't need to be disinfected because no, it's but clean. Maybe some exfoliation is necessary. Yeah. Normally, yeah. when you when you catch meat or kill meat, you have to skin it, clean it. Right. But if it's coming out of a lab, I guess really you just need to wash it off. Maybe it's like gravy. After a while, it just develops a skin. Just don't, <laughs> just don't uh, cook it in your tub. This bathtub's on fire. Oh, it's got this song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's just, it's so rare that your tub catches on fire. That you're barbecuing your cultured meat. Well, this was brisket, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a brisket. Uh, brisket's good. It's hard to find a good place to barbecue nowadays. Right. But whatever you do, don't do it in a synthetic <laughs> tub. Because you'll melt it. Anywho. But that's redefining your story. Yeah, it, yeah, that's it. Yeah. In a corporate sense. 
That's actually they're, inventing your story. Well, because there's that. It's it's all you know. Redefining degrees. it would be like roadkill, and you're just redefining it as you know edible. <laughs> this is edible. I swear. I promise. We'll get to uh, those fun stories uh, for you. We will eventually come up with a new name mm. for the cultured meats that are created in labs today. Uh, instead of the pink pocket, which didn't seem to take off. We will get to that. Also, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. Find out uh, what's coming up on their show. We'll do a little hero story or two. But first, let's get to Caitlin Thomas with the headlines. Caitlin, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Unlike his running mate, Mike Pence said he believes Barack Obama was born in the United States. He says, I believe Barack Obama was born in Hawaii. I accept his birth." birthplace. When asked whether Trump should apologize for having stoked the whitely debunked claims, Pence demurred, instead saying Trump's record both as a businessman and as a political leader and a patron in supporting minority efforts really speaks for itself. During an NBC News National Security Forum last night, Donald Trump defended his earlier claim that rape is to be expected with women serving in the U.S. military. Trump made the statement on Twitter in 2013. At that time, Trump noted that there had been 26,000 unreported sexual assaults in the military, adding, what did these geniuses expect when they put men and women together? Trump defended the comment, saying it is a correct tweet. There are many people that think that's absolutely correct. He clarified that he did not mean he would remove women from the military, but said something has to happen to fix the problem. And last for today, two former Detroit principals were hit with prison time yesterday for a fraud scheme that defrauded the public school system out of $2.7 million. Ronnie Sims and Nina Graves-Hicks are just two out of 12 principals to be charged in the scheme in which prosecutors say the officials took kickbacks from a vendor and submitted fake invoices for supplies. Uh, I remember this. It involves gift cards and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, come on. 12, 12 different... Two and a half million dollars? Yeah. Nearly that, yeah. Last week we did a story. Thanks, Caitlin. We did a story about somebody that was able to embezzle or steal six and a half million dollars worth of cartridges, ink cartridges. Yes. Out of their company. That's a lot of ink. It's a lot of ink. Wow. Two and a half million or so for these two. What's happening? I mean, no wonder our school fees are going up. Because people are stealing, yeah. <laughs> Crazy town. Hey, um, we've we've got so much to get to. I but I I can't get that bad taste out of my mouth from the meat story. <laughs> the fake meat. Again, if you if you're out there in listener land, the the companies that make meat in um, labs and then sell it the pink. Meat, I guess that now. What should be, I think, most worrying is these companies are selling this product. It already exists. It's they're, already in your food chain. They're just now starting to publicly sell it. They're selling it to other companies who then incorporate it into their food. Now they're going to start selling it themselves. That's why they need a a better, more public friendly name. I'm pretty sure the the meat in my daughter's lunchables was lab grown. Yeah, <laughs> meat is the questionable term in that. So it goes on here. It says, research suggests the biggest influence on a person's opinion of a particular food is how they expect it will taste. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Giving fun, enticing names to healthy food increases the desire to try them. Why not call broccoli, broccoli bites or carrot, x-ray vision carrots? Mm. 
Brinkles. Re- Call it Brinkles. Renaming food to make them sound more appealing results in an increase in the sale of vegetables in the school cafeteria by 27%. Great point. We try that with our kids. Yeah. You know, like this will give you superpowers. Yeah, we tell our kids that too. But they don't. It never happens. No, they just Google it and they find out, no, it won't, Dad. It will give me vitamin C. Brinkles. If you called broccoli Brinkles, I'll bet you kids would eat more of it. Bringles. <gasps> if they were Bringles, Bringles, I would eat them. Now, this says uh, the move comes as high-tech foods are starting to appear before consumers. Impossible Foods unveiled its plant-based burger at Momofuku Nushi. I'm saying that wrong, but it's a New York City restaurant. But let's just call it Momo. Momofuku Nushi. Momofuku Nushi in New York. And Beyond Meat is selling its version of a similar product at a limited number of U.S. supermarkets. So these are like tofu, but it's not even tofu because tofu is a thing. Yeah, tofu's a thing. This isn't tofu. This is beyond meat. <laughs> Don't you think a top seller would be just meat? Like, wouldn't that yeah. just meat? You Me- know what? What about almost meat? This says Memphis Meats is perfecting its product, and Perfect Day, a vegan milk company, is looking to launch its first yogurt product in 2017. So keep you an mean, eye out. Fogart. Fogart. <laughs> Hey, I love this Fogart. John Fogarty can be the spokesperson. That would be great. Oh, man, what is happening to this world? we It's kind of like, well, we well, used to sneak this meat into your world. Uh, you didn't even know about it. Now we want to have it out on the shelf. The next step is bugs. We'll be eating bugs? We'll just eat bugs. Well, we've already been eating sausage. Yeah. Which people have full, they, we, they've wholly yeah. accepted. It's what's left over after they uh-huh. take all the good parts. You don't want to know what we put in the sausage. There's a little hoof in there. You'll be all right. And that's so it's we've already had the faux meat. Yeah. Now they just but the deal is you can't have it. You can't have the word lab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and meat. It kind of ruins in the, the same uh, sentence. The and appetizing. Yeah. Unless it's balabnia. balabnia. I love balabnia. Give me a balabnia sandwich with some fogurt. It's a meat like substance. You got yourself a lunch, my friends. I'm going to ask the brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Maybe they'll have some ideas. My my favorite is still Pink Pocket or Balabnia. Okay. Balabnia. Balabnia, yeah. But we need we need your ideas. So if any of you have ideas, file, follow us on Twitter and find and you know submit your idea. At Dr. Matt Show, what should we call the fake meat? And the winner gets the some of the lab meat. We will send you a slab. A slab of lab. Straight from Beyond Meat, the company. Slab of lab. Slab That's of nice. lab. That's a nice one. That's got a nice ring to it. Yes, I'll have a, I'll have a slice of the slab of lab with some balabnia on it, please. Oh, sorry, man. That's the same thing. Okay. Um, okay, so which leads us to the next crazy story. We got a uh, – so would you rather have – Balab- Balabnia, or go to an Alaskan restaurant where they're serving elk, but they're calling it reindeer. Hmm. So you think you're eating elk? Yeah, but it's really reindeer. But it's actually a reindeer. Is no, you a... think you're eating reindeer, but it's really elk. Is there a difference in taste, texture? Well, I don't know. The last time I hit, I hit a reindeer and yeah. I ate it. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't remember when I hit a reindeer and ate it. This story caught my eye because usually it's like if you're going to replace 
like meat, it's going to be, say, beef. You can't mislabel meat. It's you, a $50,000 fine. You replace the beef with yeah, chicken. Chicken or, hey, in this, this case, elk or reindeer or right. something. But instead, they replaced reindeer with elk. Yeah. And someone noticed. Hey, this isn't as gamey. <laughs> this isn't as gamey as the reindeer I'm used to eating. <laughs> But the, the Pump House is the name of the restaurant. Was fined fifty thousand dollars. Wow! Meanwhile, a truck can pull up with slab a lab, <laughs> yeah, and nobody's going to bat an eye. But you take real meat, elk, and call it something well, else. You just use the slab a lab stuff, the lab made meat, the the stuff they grow in the in the cultured petri dish. You use that to kind of thin out, yeah, the elk, so yeah. it lasts longer. Yeah, you want, yeah, you want to. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to call it thin out. That you want it to. Well, you want to you want to stretch your your right. your, your supply. Right. So it's so like where it's, you put low fat and high fat, or the you put more fat in the meat, yeah. and it you know it'll stretch. Just call fine. it a half and half. It's it's half real meat, half whatever this other yeah. powder stuff was that we got. Half and calf. Half and calf. We better write these down. That's a good name. That's it. We may have come up with it. Half calf. Half calf. But you'd have to do that. You would have to have half meat and then. But you could have half faux meat. Decaf. And then half the faux. Oh, decaf. Uh, that might be something else. Huh. Then you'd end up with a fine again because you just, you know, misadvertised. I don't know why anybody would want to eat a reindeer. It makes me sick. Because what else is, you know. Have you ever had reindeer? Yeah. Rudolph. I haven't yeah. had him, but he. Is a great member of the family. You just skip the nose. The nose obviously has something wrong with it because it's glowing. That's usually a good sign. If the body part is glowing. Probably need to get that checked. Uh, this is not. This is not reindeer. <laughs> Who said that? Who went in there? And went, Wait, this doesn't taste like. It was so they were serving reindeer. Yeah. But they slid in the elk instead. Says who? This tastes like antelope. <laughs> is this antelope? No, it's elk. We're pretending like it's reindeer today. Is this caribou? Caribou. This tastes like caribou. That, that's a very cultured uh, palate that, that was that able is to a discern very that. Cultured yeah. palate. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. I don't know what you do with that. I just think it's what's happening. Again, we're on the way to eat bugs. We should eat caribou. We should eat elk. We should eat antelope. We shouldn't eat slabalab. It's called clean food. It's not. <laughs> it's not clean. Clean is inside of a carcass. Well, it's, it's clean. clean. They, they just they grew it in a dish. <sighs> Little electroshock. Think about what you have found growing in a dish in your house. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You ever, as a kid, left a dish under your bed or something? Once or twice. For a week or two. Yeah. Talk about Fogart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, Jeff. Jeff just got. A little, a little green over there. Yeah, he's all right. He just went quiet. I think it's an important discussion, and when we start eating bugs, you'll know why. Yeah. Okay. Grasshoppers, great protein. It's like straight pure protein. Straight pure protein. Not good on the taste, but you know you can mix in some uh, some fake meat. Yeah. It'd be good. Boy, Ooh. there's a phrase you don't hear every day. Fake meat. Yeah, just mix in some of that fake meat. <laughs> <laughs> Just See, mix it in. And all of this, you can just cover it in, like, ketchup, and you're fine. Oh, that's true. 
You know, all you need is some good ketchup. I forgot to tell you, today is Iguana Awareness Day. Oh, Iguana. <gasps> Talking about good meat. <laughs> One of my favorite songs right here. I'm starting to think that everything is food. Yeah. Or could be in a stretch. Well, I think, yeah. When you're a carnivore, anything, any animal could be. How about Soylent Pink? Mmm. Mmm, that sounds like a good one. What kind of meat would you like? I'll take some Soylent Pink, please. I've got to write those down. I'm writing them all down. Uh, happy Iguana Day, and also Happy Pardon Day, the day you'll get a pardon. If you well, pardon me all over the place. <laughs> pardon me. <laughs> okay, good times. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, Matt, uh, no, we're going to be getting into um, this uh, whole concept of rewriting your story, your life story. You can change the story, and by changing the story, you change how you think about it. Redirect is the name of the book, Changing the Stories We Live By. you got to be careful what story you tell. Sure, it's meat. It's just special meat. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Little Bob Dylan for you. Changed my way of thinking. And uh, it really works. You know, don't worry. We're almost to the weekend. Trying to change your way of thinking. It is Thursday. But uh, if, if you really want to get through the depression, overcome the traumas of life, work out family problems, make difficult decisions, we may have an answer for you that, uh, that, that possibly you haven't thought of. It, it might simply be you could go to a self-help video or whatever, try to change it that way, get over your pain. But today, renowned psychologist uh, Dr. Timothy Wilson joins us to discuss his book, Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. And he's here to teach us how to begin overcoming some of these difficulties by working on the stories we tell and how we think about it. And we appreciate you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. Great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Talk to us about uh, changing, you know, the way your stories, how you live by your stories. What do you mean by our stories? Well, I think, you know, one reason people uh, can be unhappy or get themselves into trouble is their thinking patterns, the kinds of stories they've developed that about themselves and, and their environment that might be too pessimistic or they just kind of get stuck in a negative uh, thinking pattern. And, uh, you know, sometimes this becomes really serious and, and um, needs a big intervention like psychotherapy, and, and I think that's great for people who, who need it. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like taking our car into the shop. Sometimes it needs a major overhaul, and sometimes we just need a little tune-up. And, yeah. and uh, psychologists have come up with these other techniques that are more of the tune-up variety. <laughs> right. And I guess this could be any thought, right? One thought. Give, uh, give me an example of a thought that just or, – or a story that I keep telling myself that, that really impacts me psychologically. Sure. Well, you know, I'm a college professor, so I'll, I'll give a student uh, an example of, of college students. Yeah. That uh, you know, imagine a, a first-year college student. They're, they've taken their first test, and uh, they did really well in high school. 
but suddenly they get a bad grade and, and it's that first calculus test or whatever. And uh, a real key as to what happens next is what story that student tells him or herself about why they got that bad grade. So on the one hand, the student might say, oh, man, this, this confirms my worst fears. You know, I just, I'm not cut out for college. I, I'm one of those admissions errors. I shouldn't be here. And that's going to have some really bad effects down the road. The, the story itself will lead to giving up and not studying for the next test. Right. You know, but what if the student says instead, um, gosh, this is a wake-up call. I need to learn better study habits. I should go see the professor. You know, that's a much more um, adaptive story that can lead to better outcomes down the road. And this could be anything. We could carry it in life, That the story that I'm not smart. Um, I, I told a story – or I. I came across a story that I created early in life that I don't do math. Yeah. And even but the funny thing was the data showed that I did. And I yeah, and I did yeah. it fast and I did it well, but I didn't do it like other people or I didn't do it, you know, at a high enough level that it impacted me. That's a great example, Matt, and, and I think it's a very common one. You know, it's always struck me as to why many of us are prone to conclude that about ourselves. I mean, how many people have you heard say, you know, I'm just not a word person? Right. Uh, you know, we don't say that. We say, well, I need to work on my skills. And, um, you know, just that very explanation or that very label we give ourselves can be really damaging. Why do we do it? Why do we tell these stories um, and maybe some of them we don't tell. Some of them maybe have been told to us. Well, exactly. And some of them the culture teaches us. There are all sorts of stereotypes out there like that women can't do math or you know, this particular group isn't smart. And it's easy for us to have that get under our skin if we, if we grow up in a culture. Um, you know, they can be rooted in our family background and in, um, in the way our parents uh, raised us. Uh, but I think a common misconception is that they can't be changed, that because they are perhaps rooted in, in our upbringing, that, that uh, they're indelible. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think with a little work, they, they can be changed. Um, in fact, my, my, my story of not doing math even became a story of my family. We aren't math people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So then it was like institutionalized to my family. Um, but I guess... Part of this is if I buy the story, if I never look at the story I tell, then I'm stuck in it. Yes, yes, uh, and I think that's that's right. And and uh, and you know, sometimes we even have to dig a little deep to to see what the story is. Sometimes it's just basic assumptions we're making that we've never really questioned and or made explicit, and and just kind of um, you know digging in there a little bit to see what our story is is, is a start. Yeah. I always thought that a story was basically a thought formalized. Is, um, is, is that is that an inappropriate way to look at? Like yeah, it's because it's um, if we keep telling well, the same you know, story, we keep telling the same thought. Sure. I mean, if by formalized you mean you know we repeat it to ourselves a lot, yeah. um, it's kind of our default that we go to when something happens to us. Then then sure. But it's thinking, isn't it? And I guess this is all then about learning how to rethink your thinking. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, uh, you know, there's been some cool techniques developed. Um, Some are delivered by um, the people around us. So, you know, one reason I bring up the college student example is because we did a study several years ago 
where we tried to change those stories in, in students who were struggling. And, and it was really simple. We, we brought in um, students uh, who were in their first year of college and not doing so well. And we simply gave them the message that, you know, lots of people struggle at first. Uh, they watched some videotaped interviews of older students who said, yeah, you know, I, I really got some bad grades my first semester, but I'm doing just fine now. And, you know, that little message that it isn't just me, it's it's maybe the situation and that I, and I can deal with it, um, had a pretty dramatic effect. The, the people who got that message compared to a group that didn't um, had better grades a year after our study. So sometimes it doesn't take much to just nudge people into a better way of thinking about their situation. So I guess, I guess one – what I heard there was being more specific. So it's a specific versus a general statement. I, I didn't do so well on this test versus – I'm oh, my heavens, I'm not doing well at all. Yes. No, that's really a, a good point that um, – you know, it's easy for us to jump to the general conclusion sometimes and important to say, no, this is one bad grade in one context and let's see what we can do to make it better. Yeah. What's another technique that we can use to, to strengthen our story? Well, um, there's a phrase that we psychologists like called do good, be good. And the idea is that sometimes if you want to change what's inside your head, actually changing your outward behavior first is a good first step. So um, if we want to be more helpful people, then doing some volunteer work. Or if we want to improve a relationship, um, acting in a nicer way towards our partners. Um, that You know, this isn't going to cause dramatic change immediately, but... But just changing what we do, often our stories follow from that. Uh, there's, there's a famous study that was done with high school students um, that actually got them to engage in volunteer work in their communities for a year. And the students got to change, got to choose um, you know, whether they worked in a daycare center or an old folks home or whatever. And it was fascinating. You know, just that volunteer work changed their views of themselves. They began to see themselves as more engaged in their community, as, as people who care about others. And the ones who were in that program um, got better grades. Um, the girls in the program were less likely to get pregnant. It was actually a very mm. good anti-pregnancy program. <laughs> interesting. Isn't that interesting? And it's, um, we've heard, do you know who Amy Cuddy is? Yes, and yes. so I mean, Amy Cuddy talks a lot about just your just you know assuming the Superman pose or the Wonder Woman pose, like whatever the pose is. Just your body changing and taking a different position changes maybe the story you would tell. Yes, yes, I mean, we uh, we we're very good observers of ourselves, and and we're, we're you know not necessarily consciously, but we're we're seeing what we're doing and making note of it all the time, and you know, what position our body is in or what we're actually doing is is a key to changing those stories. But you know there are other ways too, and and there's there's a variety of writing exercises that have been developed and that can be very helpful if people. You know, there's some kind of problem that's been preying on us. We haven't been able to get over some episode in our life. Just taking out a piece of paper and writing about it, say, for 10 minutes uh, a night, three or four nights in a row, and trying to be really open about our feelings. Um, it's interesting. It's not easy to do. When, when you ask people to do that, they often, um, you know, they're writing often about fairly traumatic things, and, mm -hmm. and um, it's hard. But if we can make ourselves do it, 
it leads to story change. People begin to view the event differently, maybe come up with a different explanation um, in ways that allows them to move on. And this is research by a psychologist named James Pennebaker that's been replicated dozens of times and is, is really, really helpful. I guess part of that is because you are, you are the author. Yeah. You might put yourself in the role of the author. I'm writing it, but I might also see that I could write it another way. Yes, yes. In fact, some, you know, some recent studies show that one way to kind of kickstart that is to write from a third-person perspective. So try to um, uh, imagine you're someone else looking at your situation and how an outside observer would see it. It, it kind of makes us a little more objective hmm. and maybe just sees ourselves, you know, puts it in a different light that, that can be helpful. Oh, that I love that. Um, okay, we've got to take a break. We... We've got so much to talk about. We're speaking again with Timothy Wilson, who is the author of the book, Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By, and he's uh, also a professor at uh, the University of Virginia, I believe, and is here to walk us through the stories we tell, some tools to help us redirect those thoughts, those stories, and change the life uh, that we're living. Stick with us, folks. More when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Timothy Wilson. He is uh, walking us through his book, Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By, and is trying uh, his darndest to help us understand how we can change our thinking via our storytelling. Um, it really is, I guess, how we how we share this concept, this identity of who we are. We we all have a story inside of us, and a lot of times, apparently, Dr. Wilson, the story is not necessarily accurate. Well, um, I would say that it's it just doesn't serve us well, that, that regardless of how accurate it is, it can be self-defeating if, if it leads us to be too pessimistic about ourselves or... Uh, as we were saying, to label ourselves as not a math person when, in fact, we, we could do quite well. Right. And and I, I guess uh, framing it in an absolute or a, that, or a generalization, I guess, the, the deal with it is, is it's, um, it ends up then creating a negative feeling. Is that what happens? The, the stories then, if they're not complete, they end up creating kind of – they overwhelm us. Is that what happens? Well, that can lead to self-defeating patterns of behavior. So, you know, if I label myself as, as not a math person, um, I'm not going to try as hard. I'm, I'm not going to sign up for, for more difficult math courses. Um, you know, I, I hit a difficult problem in my homework. I'm more apt to give up. Um, where, and, and so that will confirm my original uh, conception of myself. Mm. Um, you know, work by Carol Dweck talks about these ideas of, about our own intelligence. That some people have what she calls a fixed mindset, the idea that intelligence is a thing we're born with and there's a certain amount of it in our tank, sort of like gas in a car, and, uh, you know, we have it or we don't. And that can be really unhealthy because a lot of times in life, things, it's effort and perseverance that matter. And if you have the fixed mindset, if, if things go wrong, you know, you're having trouble with that math problem, 
the logical conclusion is, oh, I guess I, I don't have it, uh, yeah. so, so why try? Uh, so she advocates what she calls a growth mindset, which is the idea that the brain's like a muscle and, and we need to exercise it and it gets stronger and, and uh, seeking the right kind of help and, and trying hard is, is the way to accomplish things, not just by assuming we're smart or not. Well, I guess that's every thought we have could could impact us in some way or another just the thought like a growth mindset that this you know life should be hard that yeah. versus life should be easy just there's so many assumptions we make and a lot of them we never ever evaluate no it's true and, and you know i think it's also true of our relationships that sometimes we go into marriage say with the idea that um you know this is going to be perfect i found the one and and it's a rosy future from here on in and and that's hardly ever true right. and any any marriage has bumps and and getting used to each other and and uh <laughs> i was listening to an interview recently of a fellow who's written a book about this and he said on on his 10th wedding anniversary his wife dressed all in black, and he asked her why, and he, she said, I'm having a funeral for all my hopes that have died. <laughs> and, but, but they're still married. And, you know, and I, I think it's you know, realizing that marriage takes some work like anything else is, is, is a healthy way to approach it. Is there – at what point can I influence and help other people evaluate their thinking and their storytelling, I guess, without becoming – intrusive well certainly as parents we can I, I think one of our our job as parents is to shape our kids stories and and to make sure they're or to try our best to that they don't develop these fixed mindsets about themselves that they they think they they can accomplish things uh more through effort and and less with just these fixed abilities um, not that fixabilities don't matter, of course. Not all of us can be major league baseball players or, you know, in the Olympics, but but a lot of times we have more potential than, than we realize. Um, and I think in relationships, um, uh, not jumping to conclusions about each other and, and um, um, you know, there's one study that found that just asking married couples to write about their conflicts, again, from a third-person perspective, to think about how an outside person might view their conflicts um, was very helpful. It allows them to be a little more rational about what was going on and and increase their satisfaction with their, with their marriage. Hmm. I see that. Uh, I coach couples on their communication, and that's what we have them do. We don't have them write it out. We have them try to see it as an outside party and just point out the data versus interpretation of the conversation. And it's fascinating when they start looking at it as an outsider and just uh-huh, the, and uh-huh. the patterns of it. Yeah, that's great. It becomes that's less great. offensive, right? Because it's, oh, look what we are doing. Look what, look what is happening there, I mean, and versus the you said and he said and she said. Right. And um, As we wrap this up, what, what advice would you give us uh, to begin? If, if we wanted to immediately like, be able to take this home today and, and start redirecting some of our thinking, what, what's one activity I could do tonight? Well, I'll, I'll suggest two. One is yeah. the writing exercise. So you know, take out that piece of paper and um, write about some area of your life that you're unhappy with. Um, maybe from that third-person perspective of of uh, how an outside observer would view the situation, and 
do that maybe a couple of nights in a row and just see if it leads to a, a new interpretation that works better for you. Hmm. Um, but the other is that do good, do good. Is you know Often the best way to start is to change our behavior a little bits at a time, um, doing that volunteer work, being, being nicer to someone we're having conflict with, and good things can, can result from that. And just and get started. Don't, you don't have to wait. Right. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you. Great insights. Dr. Timothy Wilson, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Matt. appreciate it. You bet. The book is Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. Go check it out. It's a wonderful read and a great insight into how to, I think, take your life back. Become the author of your life again. Powerful insight. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Is the iguana gonna go? Is the iguana gonna stay? Is the iguana gonna dance? Is the iguana gonna play? Welcome back, friends. What is the iguana going to do? Silly iguana. Let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Sports. Sports. What do you think the iguana's going to do? Uh, Come again, <laughs> Baxter. Fired in. Uh, today Park is twice if you're in Milwaukee. <laughs> today is Igua- Iguana Awareness Day. Mm. Iguana Awareness. Yeah, so Day. we're celebrating, the, and that's the song. What's the iguana going gonna do? What's the iguana gonna do? I, I don't know. Tuck a slate, be a baseball might uh, help him grow up a little bit. Something. I have no idea. What, what, what? iguana? What's going that's, on? That's a really good voice there. Lost. Are we on right now? Hey, is, it, is this working? Is this? Hello? Hello. <laughs> hey, okay, here's Bro. the question for you. Now, you guys may not know this, but um, as a connoisseur of fine meats, I uh, have been doing some research, and apparently... There have been food companies, they call it, they're called food technology companies, that have been creating meat-like products for years. Mm-hmm. And like That's dangerous. Yeah. Spam. Yeah, spam. But, and spam's like the, the most, the, it's a well-known one, but, and probably even, spam. it even might contain more meat than some <laughs> of these others. Um, but here's the problem. These food technology companies, they now are trying to create, they, they want to take their products a little bit more mainstream. So they're not just added to foods, but they actually could just be on the shelf. Okay. For example, by the way, they call it right now, the products are called cultured meats or lab-grown meats. They listen to classical music and read excellent books. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cultured. That's right. So so we're trying to come up with they they, yeah. they call it clean food, but they're reaching out, they want to maybe get some other names for this food. We've we've come up with a few names and we'd like you to come up with one um, if you could. Okay. Um, we we've come up with uh Balabnia. <laughs> Huh? Which, which is a mix. Of, it's kind of baloney, but it was made in a lab. Uh, Balabnia. Yeah. Slab a lab. Slab of lab. Um, or my favorite personally is pink pocket. Oh. <laughs> That's disgusting. Oh. Pink pocket. How about this? <laughs> How about this, Matt? Yeah. Flask jerky. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> oh, that is. Yeah. 
Flask jerky. <laughs> so gross. That is so gross. That sounds ooh, ooh, fillet so of flask. disgusting. Filet of flask. Oh, my goodness. That is really good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jerem, um, what would you want to call it? And then we're going to submit these and see if we can win. I have no idea. Filet of flask is good. Slab flask jerky. I'm telling you, go flask jerky is the is the way to go. Is that going to work? Yes. Plumeat. Ooh. Like Pl- plastic meat. Like P L. Like phlegm. Phlegmeat. Phlegmeat. P H L M E A T. Phlegmeat. Like in uh, yeah. like. Need <laughs> from uh, what was that? What was that movie? I can't. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, um, Sneed. Uh, Snurt. Is it Snurd or is Sneed. it Sneed? I can't remember. Is it Need? I'm gonna look it up. Hold on. What about this one? Okay. What about um, you? It would be great. The Lorax. You, oh, the Lorax. Yeah. Sneed. Yeah. But if you if you could intro, I mean, the word pink, I think could also be in there. So if you could like do lab pink meat something. You don't want lab. No, no, you don't want lab. Name, right? No, that's why you put like a slab of lab. Be subtle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. flask is really good. The best <laughs> jokes are subtle, right? um, or like uh, beaker bobs. <laughs> Beaker. <laughs> Animal. Okay, these are really good, you guys. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm getting all hungry now. Hey, oh, hey, do you guys know what tonight is? Uh, Women's soccer on BYU TV and BYU Radio featuring Spencer Linton and the start of the NFL season. Yes. What do you think? So for the first half an hour, you can watch the NFL, and then you can watch women's soccer on BYU TV. How awesome. Really, you get both. you you are going to support Brigham Young University Athletics. Are you in or are you out? Exactly. Are you a team player? Are you You part of the team? There's no gray area. There's no gray in the color scheme at Brigham. It's blue and white. By the way, gray. Make it happen. If you're colorblind, I'm really sorry. Gray matter might be another great name for the meat. Gray matter. Gray matter. Pink okay. matter. Oh yeah, that's anti right. <laughs> anti meat matter. <laughs> is that is that meat? Um, so is that the, meat or anti meat? <laughs> this is the Super Bowl rematch minus uh, starting quarterback. No, minus you know Peyton Manning. Who? Who? Huh? So now the quarterback's going to be Trevor Sim- Simeon. Simeon. What do you think? I think that I think it, Cam Newton has the advantage, but the Broncos defense is good. So yeah, the Denver Broncos. Bron- the Denver Broncos defense is awesome. Von well, Miller is amazing. So here, here's the thing: they barely had uh, a quarterback last year with Peyton Manning at the end. That's of the year. true. He just wasn't that good. He was so tired. Can that defense carry them? This is why you might want to watch the Cougar soccer game. BYU women's soccer, by the way, number seven in the country. That's They're huge. legit. Yeah, totally. They just beat Utah on Monday. They have the nation's leading scorer, Ashley Hatch. Yeah, baby. <laughs> that is cool. That's going to be a good game. And where else are you going to get no, flask it won't, jerky? It won't be a good game. Totally. BYU will blow out SMU. It's going to be at least three to something. Ooh, Jerem calling a shot. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Smoo in the house? I don't think so. Somebody's had too much flask jerky. <laughs> Maybe Smoo could be the name of it. <laughs> um... Anything? Are you guys going to do a show today, or oh, are oh, we oh, ever? Oh, it's rivalry week. Are Let's we go! ever? This is a huge show. We have the head football coach from the University of Utah, Kyle Whittingham, on the show. <gasps> are you serious? Does he care about BYU getting into the Big Twelve? And is he ready to hug it out with Kalani Satake? You know what? Ask him about phlegm meat. I don't know that we will do that, but we will ask him if the rivalry dynamic has changed. Okay, that's cool. If BYU gets into the Big 12, does he still want to play the game? 
Ooh, that's a great question. Questions for mm-hmm. days. Rhetorical until answered. This and is Bill Riley, the play-by-play voice of the Utes, is going to tell us if he thinks the rivalry dynamic has changed with Kalani Satake taking mm. over and what matchup is he looking for that he feels will determine the game on Saturday night. <laughs> what a great show. You guys are locked and loaded. It's rivalry week. Let's go. <laughs> Settle Mount down. Up. Did you give him Regulators! some sugar? Get get that boy a pink pocket. I, pink pocket. Uh, when my daughter sees Arby's, she says, we have the meats. Now, <laughs> by the way. By the That's way, elite parenting. <laughs> one of the benefits of cultured meats is you don't get meat sweats. Just a I fact. love not having meat sweats. Just a fact for you all. All right. Sweats. You guys are going to have a great show. I can already tell. Uh, thank you. If we don't, then we won't. It's and again, happy Iguana Awareness Day. <laughs> By the way, oh, another yeah. white meat. We we started with iguanas and we ended with flam or whatever we Flem decided meat. to now fl- I fl- meat. want red iguana for uh, Beaker Bobs. <laughs> Beaker Bobs. <laughs> These are good. Jerky. Balavnia. I'm not really hungry anymore. It's weird. <laughs> okay, guys, have a great show. Go shave. I know you got to shine. You got to get all ready, stretched out for the big one. Goodbye. Goodbye, kids. And may. May you may you always have cultured meat. Boy, did you hear that vibrato? Jerem's got a great vibrato. That's a sentence you don't hear often. Man, you've got a great vibrato. Thank you. Well, we came up with a great list of meats. Flask jerky is a wonderful idea. Filet flask, filet a flask. Mmm. Doctor uh, Frankenfurter. Doctor Frankenfurter. We didn't put that one on there. Can I get a Dr. Frankenfurter, please? This is good. The gray matter, it reminds me too much of the brain. Is your brain gray? Last time I checked, it was. But beaker bobs? Mm, I love myself. I love some beaker bobs. Ah, speaking of food, this is a weird thing that's been going on. We've talked about it on the show before. Th- uh, thieves loot hundreds of pounds of cucumbers from Manitoba in an organized uh, heist, the poor Manitoba farmers are losing their cucumbers left and right. Hundreds of pounds of cucumbers were stolen from a farmer. Uh, the theft on a large scale is becoming a growing problem. Farmers' fields are being raided, said Aaron Crampton, owner of Crampton's Market in Winnipeg. One of her suppliers, whom she wouldn't name, has as many as 500 pounds of cucumbers stolen earlier this season. The farmer found his cucumbers missing and tire tracks leading in and out of the field. And now they're on the black market. Now they're on the green market. Okay. Touche. <laughs> People are getting cleaned out. You want to buy some cucumbers? Hey, you want some of the green stuff? I got pickled. <laughs> are you trying to sell me weed? No, cucumbers. We only deal in cucumbers here. <laughs> do, you, I, do you have any cucumber water? No, but we have cucumbers. <laughs> Could you put them in some water for me? If you provide the water. You know what's sad is that there's not enough. Now there won't be cucumbers for cucumber water. There won't be cucumbers for people at spas to put over their eyes. Can't I mean, put them in your salads. Can't put them in your salads. You can't put them in front of your kids to not eat. Yeah. 
You can't put them on the counter to just mold and just get old. Can't do it. <sighs> What's happening? What's happening to this world? Meat that's not even real meat. People stealing cucumbers. People in Alaska serving elk but calling it reindeer. Come on! <sighs> Time to get me a pink pocket. Pink pocket. <laughs> I love me a pink pocket. Here we go. We're going to wrap it up with our hero story. Former UFC champ Maisha Tate rescues injured six-year-old on a mountain hiking trail. Listen to this. Former UFC's women's bantamweight champion Misha Tate is regarded as kind of a as a kind and giving soul by her peers. Her latest act of kindness is a heartwarming one that finds her uh, as a real-life hero to a six-year-old girl and her parents during an incident near Mount Charleston in Las Vegas, Nevada. Over the weekend, Tate was hiking at the Mary Jane Falls, a hiking trail at Mount Charleston, when a six-year-old Kai broke her arm near the top of the mountain. Tate spotted Kai's mother struggling to carry the little girl down the 2.6-mile trail and decided to help out. I saw her meekly built mother struggling to carry her daughter down the mountain, so I offered to carry the little girl to the bottom. Tate posted on her Facebook page. The mother asked the six-year-old daughter, would you rather have me or her carry you down? Without hesitation, to my surprise, she quickly replied, I want her to carry me. She has images that were posted on uh, on her page, on her Facebook page. To our rescue and assistant came the amazing Maisha Tate at UFC Fighter. The uh, father posted on his Instagram. She offered to help us carry her down the mountain. Such an amazing and humble person to have met. Our family can't thank you enough for all your help. You saved us easily hours of hiking and helped us to get her to the hospital sooner. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So to Maisha Tate, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Again, isn't that all we need to, as a hero is just to be there at the right time and to be willing to carry the load for another person? And honestly, that's why we do the show. We want to give you this information so you might be able to be inspired by the work of others and to go be a hero. The most important to be person you can be a hero to, honestly, your family, your friends, the people closest to you. So let's do it. Let's take the rest of the day and go make it. Uh, a heroic day by taking care of our family, our friends, looking out for those that just need a little lift. That's your challenge. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll be back again tomorrow. Check us out on Facebook, on iTunes. Go to the BYURadio.org page. All that fun stuff. We'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, make it a great one.